guest today, John Bush of Live Free Academy and about a dozen other things, John. How you doing today, man? I'm good. Life is good. Staying busy. Hey, I asked you to come on today because I actually had today open for Bitcoin Breakout and the Survival Podcast. I was just going to kind of do a solo show. And then you reached out and reminded me, hey, dummy, you're coming down to, uh, to Greater Reset 4 as a speaker in a few weeks. Why don't you tell people about it? And as I said, I'm like, I should have John on to talk about Bitcoin because he knows a lot about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And I haven't had you on the show, you know, other than maybe an expert segment here and there for a long time. So uh, thanks for being with us today. Uh, let's start out of the gate, though. You've got something coming up called Greater Reset. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a it's an event. Again, I'm going to be speaking at it. You've got a great lineup of people. I'll leave it to you to tell folks who's going to be there. But what is it? What is the Greater Reset? Where did it come from? And, and what, if anything, does it have to do with something like Bitcoin? Okay, so Derek Bros and I, he's one of my close activist allies, known him for 10 years. When we started hearing all the buzz about the Great Reset, that's the World Economic Forum's effort to create more centralization, more surveillance, usher in a technocracy, which is like rule by scientific dictatorship, basically. I like to call it New World Order 2.0. Everyone's freaking out about it, and most people in the freedom movement, truth movement, their response is to write articles and watch documentaries. So we're like, why don't we – instead, we empower people. So sure. they want to change the world. We, too, can change the world. So we launched the first Greater Reset in 2020, and it's basically an effort to empower people, inspire people, educate people by bringing together – visionaries, speakers, authors, activists, entrepreneurs, just doers, people that are doing really cool stuff in the world with a focus on action and solution and provide a platform for these folks to share what they're doing to opt out of the Great Reset. We're now in our fourth iteration. It's simulcast from Morelia, Mexico, where Derek hosts the sessions and from Bastrop, Texas, where I'm hosting, where you'll be joining us. Uh, in Bastrop, we're going to be joined by Jack, of course. We got Dr. Ken Berry. Got this really cool guy named Alex Zek that does a lot of work in the health freedom movement. Um, myself, Rebecca, uh, really Texas Slim. He's been doing a lot of great work. We've been following him and, and promoting a lot of stuff that he does. So super excited for folks. And at the end of the day, what's most important, more so than the speakers, is the community, the networking opportunity, and just getting together with like-minded people and working together to create freedom. The theme is co-creation. So we're going to bring people together, and we're not just going to do a one-off event and then it's over. We're going to come together so we can build a better world. And so what I'll add to that is if you're watching a live video or watching the video in the future, right down below the video in the notes, there is a link, and it will take you over to uh, where you can learn more about this event in Bastrop, the Greater Reset 4, where you can meet me, John, and a bunch of other real cool people. Uh, or if you're listening to the audio, it'll be in the audio notes for today. And there's also a link in the video notes that goes over to the audio. So it has tons of links and all the resources for everything we'll be talking about today. Um, one of the big issues I have, John, with the whole World Economic Forum, this Great Reset, and, and not just like I actually think there's like competing factions. That's just kind of the biggest one of them sure. uh, that's out there today trying to do this stuff. The one that's become the most effective, unfortunately. But is this push 
toward centralizing currency under what, you know, the shorthand is CBDC, central bank digital currencies. And I think a lot of people don't even really understand what that would mean or why that would be a bad thing. The government or the central bank makes the money anyway. What's the difference if it's digital? I've had people say, you know, you're the one that says 98% of the money is already digital. But this is a totally different type of a digital currency that they're trying to push out. And, and, and you know, you have to ask yourself why. And I, I think we both know the answer to that. But you want to tell people why? Well, essentially... A lot of folks in the cryptocurrency or Bitcoin movement, well, this is crypto in particular. We can get into the difference there. I know yeah. you're big on that. Um, are familiar with smart contracts, which is essentially a cryptocurrency or blockchain that's programmable. So you can write code on top of it yeah. rather than writing code that is hosted on Amazon's servers or an app, the Google Play Store. You have code that's hosted on a blockchain. So you can do all sorts of cool stuff with this. Well, the CBDCs will be programmable money. So in addition to being able to very easily track, trace, surveil, and analyze all your transactions, they'll be able to do sophisticated programs like uh, a negative interest rate. So imagine the economy is in a slump as it is today and all your money is central bank digital currency. It's all digital, no cash. It's all ones and zeros controlled by the central bank, I should say, not issued by a commercial bank when you take out a loan, which is how most new money is created. And so they'll be able to say, well, if you got $10,000 in your savings account, that $10,000 is slowly going to lose value over time and you're going to have an incentive to spend it to stimulate the economy. Of course, that's already happening now with inflation. On top of that, let's say they all of a sudden tie in some new sophisticated healthcare program and everybody's required to do this test annually or whatever. This isn't far-fetched type of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you are above your cholesterol or whatever health, health rating they're going for. They could then increase the cost of junk food for you, right? Let's say you attend a protest, just like happened with the Canadian trucker freedom convoy thing. It was all peaceful protests protected by the law and the Bill of Rights here in the U.S. This was in Canada. They could penalize you and say, well, we're not going to let you do this, that, or the other. Or what seems to be the most likely case is <clears throat> there's this thing called a personal carbon allotment, and mm -hmm. there's this app that the World Economic Forum is pushing. And so let's say your household is only allowed a certain number of carbon credits per month. You exceed those credits because you go on too many trips or you drive too much. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to be paying a tax in order to get an airline ticket, or perhaps you'll be shut out of the airline ticket or you can't travel out of the city, all this stuff. It's going to interlock the digital ID, the vaccine passport, which is going to be more than just for vaccines. It's going to be about your liberty and your right to travel freely. And they'll tie that in with the central bank digital currency and and eventually a social credit score, which corporations already have in this ESG thing. Yeah. So, you know, this is slowly, but it's a frog in the boiling pot thing. So some people are skeptical like that could never happen, but it is happening in other parts of the world. They're testing it in the U.S. And it's only a matter of time before this is fully implemented and accepted. So the thing to do is to preemptively opt out by learning these decentralized, uncontrollable technologies like Bitcoin and figuring out how to use them and finding other people to use them with now. You know, when people say a thing can't happen, I, I often say, well, look at what has happened. Yeah. So let's not even worry about the COVID thing or whatever. Look at the ESG thing that you mentioned. 
So the ESG thing is, is really pushed by WEF, World Economic Forum. And it basically is corporations saying, we're going to do these things in an environmentally friendly way. We're going to have a certain program or whatever. Now, if you look at the number of big corporations, publicly traded corporations that are ESG, it's almost all of them. Now, if you went back 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. So in a decade, we've went from none of them doing this to all of them doing this. And one of the prime drivers of this is a company called BlackRock. And BlackRock is the largest investment firm in the world. And they just basically said, if you don't do ESG, we won't put you into our portfolios with our investment funding. Yeah. And it was that it, that sounds complex, but it's actually that was dramatically simple to get that done because the board of directors just goes uh, this ESG thing. Well, it plays well with hippies and hipsters and young people and uh, the largest investment firm in the world will invest in our stock if we do it. I uh, nay. And then one guy that says, no, they punch you. Right. And they think <laughs> out the window. Board because you do fiduciary responsibility or whatever. Like so that happened in the last decade and no one even other than a very small group of us even paid attention to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's all these mechanisms. Essentially, one of these uh, methods that the quote unquote New World Order, World Economic Forum, if you want to get specific, right, these Klaus Schwab types, they in many cases circumvent national governments. Now, in many cases, they actually have Justin Trudeau like part of their system and their program. Right. But oftentimes they can go around the need for a legislature to pass a law by influencing corporations Part of the World Economic Forum's effort is this fourth industrial revolution and this concept of impact investing. So in addition to the World Economic Forum and NGO, there's also tax exempt foundations that will come into a community and they will finance and subsidize the education of children from pre-K all the way through high school and college in order to incentivize the development and growth of certain industries. These industries that make up the fourth industrial revolution, which is the merging of biology and technology, robotics, AI, drones, surveillance, social media technology, uh, the metaverse. Right. So they'll like. There, there's actually bets that get placed, options, yeah. like longs and shorts on whether or not this is going to be successful. It's called pay for success financing. So they're coming at us from all angles. And like you said, the ESG thing is happening. It's happening slowly but surely. And we need to wake up to it. And the question is, it's not like, let's freak out about it or let's whine yeah. or cry about it. It's like, what are we going to do about it? Yeah. So one of the solutions that you and I have taught for years, I mean, you go back so far with Bitcoin. I, I put in the show notes today, you drove the Bitcoin bus <laughs> across the country when most people didn't know what Bitcoin was. People were sending you Bitcoin as like a project to prove you could use Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And basically your deal was you had to get all, all the places you wanted to go and pay for everything you needed with Bitcoin. And you were able to do that. And that was, I don't want to say it was 10 years ago, at least uh, somewhere in that range. Yeah. Um, and so we've promoted Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies over the years. I, I've moved more toward pretty much Bitcoin only guy myself, but I don't crap all over everything else. It's just my personal choice. True. Um, but I told you when we were leading up to this, you know, I do five shows a week. I do a Bitcoin show on Tuesdays and it's my least attended show. We had about 50 people in a live audience. Now, usually there's like 400, 500 people. Uh, it'll get a good number of downloads in the feed, but it, it won't do what the rest of the shows will. There's a lot of resistance, and my audience, a lot like yours, very much natural health, permaculture, liberty, survivalist. That's their that's their jam. And I, this is to me the group that should most embrace Bitcoin and Bitcoin's vision. And it's the one segment, I guess, other than full-on government leftists, 
that has the most resistance to it. Where do you think that comes from? I mean, that's a great question. And as uh, activists and evangelists for Bitcoin, we ought to ask that question of ourselves so we can be more effective in helping people Agreed. to get onboarded to this technology. And I just want to thank you because like, you have a huge audience and you have a very you're very talented at communicating things in a simple way, which is absolutely necessary when talking about Bitcoin, because like it or not, it's pretty complicated still. There's a lot of a lot of difficulties in getting onboarded, especially self-custody, which we could talk about. People are really overwhelmed by that. So as a in my company, Live Free Academy, I really focus on how can I help people to break through limiting beliefs and obstacles? Because more so than understanding the how to, people have to get over their own insecurities and fears. And so what I believe, and I've done a lot of thinking on this, I think there's a lot of folks, especially older generations that are uncomfortable with technology. Um, a lot of people struggled with Zoom even and smartphones even. And that's OK. That's understandable. Right. I grew up with sure. this technology. My kids even more so than me. They know more than I do about a lot of tablets and stuff like that. But I think that people, they fear that they, they feel insecure about the technology. So rather than pushing through that discomfort, maybe making some mistakes, maybe feeling like they're a little not smart on a subject, they'll rather just write it off and come up with excuses as to why it's not going to work. And the same thing happens with land. Like we, you know, we do this exit and build thing. You were a speaker at the exit and build land summit. And we're mm -hmm. like, we need to exit the cities. That's where the smart city technology, the track, the trace surveillance, 5g, all this interconnected stuff, internet of things is going down, get out of the city, get out in the country, buy some land, do some homesteading and link up with your neighbors and let's build some freedom. Well, yeah. a lot of people do the same thing. They're like, well, I can't possibly afford a down payment on a house. So rather than pursue it and figure out how to make it happen, I'm going to just believe that Klaus Schwab said we can't own anything. So they're going to take our land and there's no reason to start. So I think it just gives people an out on getting started. And and I, I want to share. I hope that people are thinking and maybe that relates in their, yeah. kind of like, you know, like that resonates with me. It's OK. None of us knew what the hell we're doing. My my lovely wife lost a Bitcoin and a half because she dropped her phone in a porta potty back in the day. Well, my, Bitcoin, Bitcoin was like 250 bucks at the time, because yeah. if yeah. it was what it is now, I'd go diving in that. Porta -potty. Oh, we were yes. together. If we were together, I would have insisted she backed it up. But mistakes get made. I lost like 90 Ethereum back when they were like four, like 14 cents or no, it was like 40 okay. cents when you started. It was cheap. Yeah. And I sent them to the wrong address without the zero X at the front. Right. Okay. We all make mistakes. That's just part of the process. And it's important that we learn now before everyone's playing catch up. And they're like, whoa, they're they're, they're going to shut my bank account down because I watch Jack Spierko's live streams and I don't have any way to do business. And you're going to have to play catch up, basically. So let's figure it out now. So, look, this is this is an example of that. And I'm not picking on David here. There's a naturally dark side to crypto and it's unparalleled ability to control a financial space like no other asset class has ever done. What crypto run by what and run by who? This is why one of the reasons I am so big as a Bitcoin maximalist at this point. Go make the Bitcoin network do anything. And, and the answer is you can't. It, it's truly decentralized. There's some other networks that I feel I'm open to the fact they're not, but I look at them and I go, I don't understand how I could you. I, I don't understand how the Litecoin network, for instance, is not decentralized. Now, anything built on Ethereum, the Ethereum Foundation can shut down an address like that. We saw it during Tornado Cash. But 
what happens here is the word crypto, and this has happened a big lately, the big thing that's like synonymous with crypto is FTX. But to me, the two aren't even related to each other. It would be like saying if somebody robbed a bank, it means that cash is bad, right? If somebody stole all the 20s out of the banker drawers, that means something happened to cash. So something happened to a bank that was not well secured. Um, Actually, what he's saying, though, is exactly what we're saying about centralized digital currency. Right. I mean, that that's where that gets in when the government controls it or I dare say any centralized authority controls it, then it can make a decision where if you have a, something truly decentralized, it's market led, in, in my view. For sure. And and you're right. And when it comes to Bitcoin versus cryptocurrency, so I guess Bitcoin stands on its own and then cryptocurrency is every other crypto decentralized, not all decentralized technology yeah. besides Bitcoin. And so the cool thing about Bitcoin and the the best thing that Satoshi Nakamoto did, in my opinion, was gift this technology to the world, the source code and the white paper, and then get the hell out of the way. Because now we truly have a decentralized currency, a decentralized means of exchanging information and storing information in an immutable way, which means it can't be changed. We don't have that with other coins, cryptos like Ethereum, especially. We have it with mm-hmm. Monero and some other ones. So that, that would be another one I would put on the list of if 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 a fellow maximalist that's also a purist wants to say that Monero's not decentralized, I would love to have you on my show and you can explain to me how that works. Because from my analysis, I don't see how it's I'm not saying it's it's not the market dominator that Bitcoin is, and it probably never will be. And I think it actually has it more threat on on and off ramps, which something we'll talk about later, because it's more feared because it's fully anonymous. But I don't see how it's not decentralized. No, it is. And you just ask yourself, like, can it be controlled? Like, yeah, I, the, the guy Daniel's comment me seemed more like he was talking about central bank digital currencies than crypto. And you, like, you're right. Ethereum, they recently switched to proof of stake, which means you can basically make decisions on the network if you hold Ethereum. With Bitcoin, it's proof of work, which means in order to make decisions or have an impact on the network, you got to put together a whole lot of computing power which takes a lot of money to buy these computers, which takes a lot of energy to operate these computers. And so a lot of people fault Bitcoin for the energy use. But in reality, it's the energy use that secures the network. Mm -hmm. So because there's like 40,000 plus different nodes hosting the Bitcoin blockchain, and because there's scores and scores of different miners, people operating mining computers that verify the transactions and add them to the blockchain, you literally would have to coerce or compel almost everybody on the network or at least a significant majority of the people on the network uh, to do your bidding in order to shift things. And I'm not going to say it's impossible to happen. And there has been some shady activity, like with the whole block size debate. I don't know if you want to get that, but there was like some censorship and all sorts of control going on there and a big corporation block stream that doesn't have the best players behind it ended up influencing things. But it birthed the Lightning Network, which I was skeptical about in the beginning, but now it seems like it's working pretty well. But anyway, Bitcoin's truly decentralized, and it's this proof-of-work consensus mechanism that allows that. So for all the fear out there that the government's going to shut it down, they're going to ban it, it's going to be manipulated or hacked, I like to ask people, Bitcoin's been around for 14 years now. How many more years have to go by with Bitcoin working as promised before people let go of that possibility of it failing or being controlled? 
I think part of this comes from this misguided belief that the government is all powerful and can do yeah. anything that it wants, right? I actually believe that if the government could have killed Bitcoin, I, I think it probably got by under the radar until it kind of spread out because they're like, no, this isn't going to work. But once it got into the wild, so to say, if they could have killed it, they would have killed it. Like, why would they would have killed it? it but there's. Even in our governmental system, which is crooked as shit, there is a court system. It is a complex court system to get through. It's hard to make a case that this thing is a security. That's that's the other thing I think. A lot of these crypto assets, I, you know me, dude. I'm a fellow anarchist. There would be no state, but there is a state. And mm -hmm. when I look at U.S. securities regulation in particular, 90% or more of what people call crypto assets, to me, legally fall as an unregistered security, if you made me swear on a jury and I swore on my honor to judge the law as written, I'd be like security, 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 security. Bitcoin isn't. So it seems like you don't have that route, though a bureaucrat could change that, I guess, and try to take that approach. But it's complex to try to shut it down that way through direct regula regulation. But I think if they could have thrown a switch somewhere, if some CIA hacker could have just nuked it, they would have done that by now. Yeah, the cat's out of the bag, and I, I agree with you. There's this Howey test because we're yeah. going to start like this a development fund, and yeah. we're going to have to use an SEC exemption, 506C, 506B. So I'm I'm researching that. I also researched yeah. it back in the day when I was going to do crypto mining or uh, crypto ATMs, Bitcoin ATMs. But the Howey test is basically just like to summarize. It's like if you put money into something as a passive player, you're not managing it. You're passive with an expectation of profit. That's the basis of a security. And when you have a corporation or a company or a foundation or an individual that starts a crypto and then you put money into it as a passive player, then the government can come pressure that corporation, that, yeah. that person, that foundation. But with Bitcoin, even if they wanted to call it a security, there's nobody to pressure. There's nobody coerce. There's nobody to pressure to turn who, who off. Do you, where, do you, where do you issue your search warrant for? Yeah. Where do you send your cease and desist order to? Yeah. Where's the building with the big B on it? Like I've, I've always said, if your cryptocurrency – has a CEO, it's not by definition decentralized. It can't be. You, you, it, it doesn't work that way. If there's a building that somebody could go into and shut the power off and your cryptocurrency would go away, it's not decentralized. If, it, if a couple people could make a decision and force a change on the network without acceptance of nodes, yeah. then it's not decentralized. And, and that's I don't want to beat this too hard because I want to get into some other things. It's but worth beating. Well, uh, One thing that I appreciate you mentioning – People got to break free of this idea that the government, the New World Order is omnipotent. And I appreciate you saying that. And I see this like I'm a I'm a fan of Elon Musk. I honestly he's not perfect in any way, but I do believe he's he's like genuinely trying to do good in this world. He's not a bad actor, in my opinion. Who knows? Maybe Bill Gates is genuinely trying to do good. But those guys really seem like psychopaths. But nonetheless, he's doing all these cool things with Twitter and like totally throwing haymakers at the FBI and the covid agenda, which is one of the best things to happen to this world economic forums, great reset agenda. In fact, they probably initiated it as part of in conjunction with all their folks. But anyway, everyone's like, no, this is all part of the scam. It's all part of the con. People are incapable of accepting that there can be some powerful people in this world that do some good or that there can be a technology that's literally uncontrollable by the government. So I'm an optimist. I think the government's weak. They're fractured. They're failing at their effort to vaccinate, vaccinate the world. People are starting to see that the emperor wears no clothes 
And that should give people hope. And people got to break through this limiting belief that it's hopeless. And no matter what we do, they're going to shut us down. They're going to kill us all. They're going to take our land and take our guns. And nobody taking any guns and land here in Texas, Jack. And you know that better than most. So I appreciate that on the omnipotence question. Yeah. This is interesting to me, too. So I find this really ridiculous. Zippity-doo perk or whatever. He said Elon Musk loves those check marks, and that is a part of the credit scoring system for individuals, governments, and corporations. I look at that and go, so you don't know how it works. You don't know what it is. You don't know what it does. I have my $8 a month blue check mark. It's a marketing product. It gives me broader reach. There's no KYC involved at all. All they did was analyze my feed and go, yeah, he is who he says he is, and put something on there that says I am. There, there is a segment in our world of people that everything is the new world order. Everything is the beast. Everything is a one world. Every, no matter what it is, it's all coming to get us. And I wonder how these people are ever going to break out of this place they live in. Cause I have to imagine they're not out doing the stuff we talk about. They're not out homesteading. They're not out building a, a, a separate business. All they're doing is sitting in this bubble going, everything sucks. Everything sucks. And to me, I don't know. I think I'd jump off a building if that was me. Like, I'm here to live my life and make things happen. And when you point out a similarity in a tool, I would point out a similarity in a weapon. So if I had my fortification and I knew people were going to come at me with automatic weapons, I would want automatic weapons to fight back with. If you're going to use a certain type of technology against me, I want an analogous technology to use against you. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And I got my blue check mark too. I didn't have to put a phone number. If you're required to put a phone number, oftentimes they can identify who you are with the phone number. I wasn't required to do a phone number. I got an old email address I don't even use from 2014 or something that's tied to my Twitter account. I think it's another question. We already I already brought this up, too, about people that don't want to get into the Bitcoin because they don't understand it. Yeah. It's a lot easier for people to think it's hopeless and there's yeah. no point to try than it is to go out and learn permaculture or to learn how to do crypto or to step out of their comfort zone and go to an event like the Greater Reset because traditionally they're introverts and they feel insecure around people they don't know. Uh, that's hard for people and they would rather just make excuses than go out there and do the work that's needed. But like you said, my life, I feel more free than ever in spite of the tyranny, in spite of Biden's scams and schemes in the World Economic Forum. Like me and my community here in Central Texas and the, the TSP community and the Coles GSD community, like yeah. we're living the good life and we're yeah. experiencing true freedom. It, it seems like that. Like we're getting all these things done. We're building all of these networks. We have all this interchange. And for some reason, it seems like our virtual communities attract a lot of people that their only purpose is to tell us that it won't work. And I just wonder what, what are those people doing? What is your proposed solution? So if you're one of the snipers in the comments here, uh, tell us your proposed solution instead of your proposed problem. Uh, let's talk about something else though. So you, we, we did have the whole debacle with FTX and I was asked to talk because obviously I'm, I'm, I'm big in the Bitcoin space, have been since 2013. And so I was like, what, talk about this talk. I basically said, look, if you did what I said, nothing happened. It didn't affect you. So don't worry about it. But when that happened, the one thing I capitalized on right away was I wrote an article on self-custody. You did a workshop on self-custody because finally people were like, holy crap, how do I do this? So I have tons of people that they're holding their Bitcoin on Bittrex or Coinbase or Strike or Swan or whatever. And I love all these companies for buying Bitcoin. 
I have no problem with them for buying Bitcoin. But what, could you explain in your words, what is self-custody and why is it so important? And why should we not hold our Bitcoin on an exchange? Okay, it's a great question. And your article is incredible. Super, like, like I said before, super simple to understand. And so understandably, people get uncomfortable with the prospect of moving your coins out of an exchange, which has a familiar feel. It's kind of like your PayPal account. There's a customer service. There's a company you can call if there's trouble, right? Oftentimes they won't do anything, especially if they go bankrupt. Um, and so people get a little insecure and afraid when they're moving it into their own hands because with great freedom comes great responsibility. So to understand why self-custody is important, I always like to educate people about how crypto Bitcoin addresses work, right? So there's a public address, which is kind of like your account number. So if Jack wanted to send me a Bitcoin right now, that'd be pretty sweet. Um, you know, back in the day, we used to send people whole Bitcoin. Oh, this here's a Bitcoin. Like 200 bucks. It wasn't a big deal, right? Um, so if Jack wanted to send me a Bitcoin, I would give him my public address, kind of like an account number, although a Bitcoin wallet can generate an infinite number of public addresses. And in fact, you can create a new one for every transaction. So you can't tie all the transactions to your wallet. And you should. <laughs> and you should. And many wallets do it automatically. Every time you go yeah. to receive, pops up an address. When something gets sent to that address, the next time you go to receive, it's a new address. OK, so the address is what identifies who has Bitcoin. And that is on the blockchain. So it says this Jack sends me a Bitcoin. I send him my address. He sends me a Bitcoin. Now the blockchain says this address has one Bitcoin. Well, each address has a corresponding private key. Whoever has access to this private key can unlock and send Bitcoin out of a public address. When you have your crypto on an exchange, only they have access to the private key. You have no access to it whatever, whatsoever. So in reality, they own and they control that crypto. And when I think of ownership and property rights, I think about like who controls it. That's really what the essence of ownership is. Mm -hmm. So whenever you take your crypto out of that exchange and now you're self-custodying it in a non-custodial wallet, only you have access to that private key. This opens up a world of freedom and ownership that we never experienced before because you talked about what happens in the past. Well, the federal government confiscated a lot of gold from the people of this country uh, not too long ago in this country's history. Right. But when it comes to Bitcoin, if you have your private key, you can memorize a seed phrase. That's like a private key for a whole wallet. Right. It's 12, 18 or 24 words. You can memorize it or you write it down and hide it in a very secret spot. Nobody can take that Bitcoin away from you. Now, a judge can take you to court and they can hold you in contempt of court if you don't reveal your keys. But for the first time in history, you at least have the freedom to choose whether or not you comply, because in every other instance, in every other alternative currency, this goes for the gold bugs. They can send a SWAT team to your house and crack open your safe and take your gold. They can't yeah. do that with Bitcoin if you're self custodying your crypto. So for freedom, it's beneficial, but more importantly for security, more practically speaking, a lot of these exchanges are over leveraged. And in the case of F FTX, and they're not the only one, FTX was doing straight up fraud, breaking the law. Some of these are just terrible fiduciary fiduciary custodians for your crypto. Why do you want yeah. to custody your crypto with a terrible, uh, irresponsible custodian? But a lot of these Crypto companies and exchanges, it turns out they're like taking people's Bitcoin and borrowing against it or they're putting it into DeFi platforms and borrowing it against it. So it's just a quagmire. The best thing to do is buy the crypto, 
maybe even you accumulate, like if you're buying a small amount, wait till you got 250 or 500. Sure. I have no problem with that. Over. And Jack's guide is amazing for that. It'll break it down. And Jack and myself and all these folks that are just obsessed with Bitcoin and we're evangelists, we'll hold your hand through the process, you know, and just ask in the comments, ask on Telegram, whatever. There's tons of people that'll help you through this. And you can you can start with 10 bucks worth. Right. So it's like, I don't know. I, I got a thousand dollars in there. I've been saving up to buy that for the past year. I don't want to mess it up. Send 20 bucks worth and, and show yourself that you could do it before you send the other nine hundred and eighty dollars. I even say that in my article. I'm grabbing the URL right now to drop it in so yeah. people can go take a look at it if they want to. But I even say, like, the first time you come off any exchange, send 15, 20, 50 bucks, something like that. Give yourself the confidence and then generate a new address and then send the rest of it off. But I get people like if you use Swan, which is one of the exchanges, I actually love Swan. They're Bitcoin only and they will help you with your efforts to self-custody. They actually promote self-custody, which makes me trust them. But if you ACH your money in, you can buy Bitcoin immediately. But then there's like a a week waiting period to take your money out, probably because there's risk on their side that you committed check fraud or something like that. So I've had people email me. I just bought my first hundred bucks with Swan and I have to wait seven days to withdraw it. I don't care. That doesn't bother me at all. But building your stack and holding your stack long-term on an exchange, I don't even consider you. If you tell me I have $10,000 worth of Bitcoin in Coinbase, my response is you have no Bitcoin. You don't own a single Satoshi right now. Coinbase does, and they've promised it to you. Because the thing with the FTX thing, and I think this is something people do not understand, um, it wasn't that the crypto got hacked. It wasn't that it went down in value. It was that when everything fell apart, let's say you bought some shit coin, and you bought it for $5 a coin, and it was only $0.50 a coin. At least you still had it. At least you still had the 50 cents per coin. Let's say you had a thousand, so you had 50 bucks instead of 500 bucks. Okay, fine. You had it. It wasn't there anymore. It was gone. It was never there. There was just a number on a screen. And when people started trying to take their money out when they realized something's wrong, it wasn't there. And if you do self custody, that just doesn't happen. And every time somebody said, but Jack, I can show you where Bitcoin got hacked. It's never that Bitcoin got hacked. It's some dumbass put it on their phone and had a hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin on their phone in a soft wallet with, with no password, right? Or it's somebody broke into an exchange and hacked out of exchange. I have never seen a single Satoshi successfully hacked off of an individual's wallet other than they got the device itself, which is why I highly recommend that you get yourself a hardware wallet. I really do because, yep, there you go right there. That's the one I recommend too. Trezor. I like the Trezor. Any Trezor. He's got one of each. <laughs> Think about giving this away as some kind of gift or prize or something. Yeah, I, I'm with you completely. And there's a lot of uh, FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doom that springs up. And there's this awesome thing on 99 Bitcoins. It's like the 400 Bitcoin obituaries. Everybody says it's going to die. It's going to die. My brother was just saying that earlier in a conversation on our little family thread. But, you know, I was just thinking as you're sharing that, what do people have to lose to, to give it a try? And, and you know, my uh, value proposition and the way that I – encourage people about Bitcoin has changed over time. I used to be all in. It was like Bitcoin, you could you could get wealthy with Bitcoin. That was the case maybe if you were way early on and super smart. Most people weren't, even myself included. I received a lot of Bitcoin, but I used it to live and didn't hold on to all of it from back in the day, right? 
Now I'm holding on for dear life because I learned my lesson. But nonetheless, what do you have to lose? I used to tell people like invest in it and you can make a lot of money, but that's not the case. If folks no. aren't doing well financially, I wouldn't start investing in Bitcoin. I would start investing in yourself. Learn some skills, take an online course, find a coach, go to meetups, right? Uh, and then or invest in your business and your ability to earn more income. And then when your income finally exceeds your expenses, then you're like, well, I got a little extra money. What can I do there? I'd still invest in your business and your, in your ability to earn income. But you can start stashing away a little bit of Bitcoin with dollar cost averaging. But regardless of your financial position, it's incumbent upon each and every person that's listening to this transmission right now to at least learn to use Bitcoin in commerce. Because yeah. I tell you what, the central bank digital currency system is being implemented it's not an if, but a win. And when the time comes that it's fully rolled out and cash is even banned, you are going to wish you learned to use this technology if you want to continue to do business online with other freedom lovers. And I saw in the chat, they're like, well, what if they ban it when the CBDCs come out? That's a possibility. But get this, guys, we're the freaking Rebel Alliance. They didn't yeah. wait. What the Rebel Alliance did, Luke Skywalker, Leia, that was illegal. The Empire didn't allow that. They killed a shitload of people, right? <laughs> that's the point. So yeah. I know I'm not turning over my Bitcoin, and that's why we're so adamant about it, because we see what's coming, and we see there's a solution. There's a way out. You know, I have this great idea. We have the scourge of fentanyl killing people in America. Why don't we ban it? <laughs> why don't we ban fentanyl? And then there won't be any fentanyl. Yep. So you can't – they can't get rid of – a drug, and somebody just said the CIA is behind it. And they may be. I, that's not my point. Okay. My point is, Highly unlikely. How many things in history have they tried to prohibit? Yeah. That when they prohibit it, it actually grows more of it. I, you, if you want, you, if if I could go to any place in time for a rip roar and freaking party, it would be about 1928 <laughs> at a speakeasy. I would love to be able to go back in time. Mm -hmm. and, and have some hooch at a speakeasy in 1928, like in Billings, Montana. I think it'd be a rockin' fest. So now you're going to try to ban something that is literally software, decentralized, in a 100 countries, secured by the most powerful and most secure network ever created by humans, ever. Good I, yeah, good luck with it. It's software. You can't – it's software and it's a blockchain. And so – I've even had people say, well, what if they, uh, they they make it where you can't download it? Like, have you kept a copy of shit? I mean, I think one of the big problems people have is, you, so you tell people to get a hardware wallet. And so what people are thinking right now that are watching the video anyway versus listening to the audio, I'm holding up a hardware wallet. I think, well, Jack's Bitcoin is in that hardware wallet. There's no Bitcoin in this wallet. Wallet's actually a, it's a terrible name. This is an access device. My Bitcoin, your Bitcoin, everybody's Bitcoin, everybody's Satoshi's exists in the blockchain. Mm -hmm. This is an access device. And the reason that we use a cold access device, in other words, this is only works when it's plugged in, is so that nobody can put like key tracking software on it or something like that. Because the vulnerability is never the blockchain. It's the device that the access is on. Now, the cool thing is I run this paired with Exodus, this particular one, and I can generate addresses with the Exodus wallet and send that to you and say, hey, pay me and you pay me and it'll show up there. But it can't be moved, touched, manipulated until I plug this in. So it'll receive anything, but it will only send with its device plus its passcode code. And it has its own private key, its own phrase. And, and so 
I challenge anybody to show me something more secure than that. And if you say, well, I can put silver in a, a safe, well, I can put this in a safe in a, with the silver, right? And the silver still has a vulnerability. If, if, if they do break in, they get a great big drill, they open the safe, and they take your silver or your gold. It's gone. If you take this, good luck with it. What's the passcode, Mr. Spiracle? I'm sorry, I forgot. I'm sorry, I forgot. Oh, look at this crumbled up paper in my pocket. I washed, I just wrote it down and I washed my shirt. My wife didn't listen to me. She threw it in. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, and will that work? I don't know, but what are they it worked do? for George Bush. Oh, Ronald <laughs> Reagan. Right? It worked for Ronald Reagan and George Bush. I don't know. I don't remember. I fail to recall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you make a good point. Um, the Bitcoin isn't on the device. It's not yeah. on software. The, so the wallet has the private key. The Bitcoin exists as a ledger entry, and that's the big innovation of this blockchain technology. So I was looking for a new office a couple of years ago here in downtown Bastrop, and I, there was this Chase National Bank, this bank from like 1860. And I went in to see, of course, it was a historical site, so they preserved the teller counter and all that stuff. It was cool. And the guy that owns the building was showing me around. And I found all these ledgers and they're like these books from oh, yeah, you were about this. This is the cool. late 1800s. And yeah. you could see credits, debits and the yeah. person's account number and their name. And so historically, ledgers have played a very important role for keeping track of who owns what and who sent what to whom and what the new balances are. There's a role for that. Well, the problem in the past was that we had to trust a third party in order to maintain the ledger. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we can't trust the banks. They're actually the ones that started inflating. You used to put gold in reserve at the banks, and they gave you these paper notes because it wasn't practical to carry gold all around. Well, they started issuing more notes than they had gold on reserve. Exact same thing the central bank does. What we can't trust the central bank. We can't trust the feds. We can't trust the Department of Treasury. Well, for the first time in history, Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, he, she, they, them, the CIA, I don't know. Most likely it's the cypherpunks, these guys that were experimenting with decentralized Internet money for like 10 years. And they finally figured it out, one of yeah. them or a group of them. And so for the first time, now we have this ledger. If Jack sends me that Bitcoin, it shows that Jack now has one less Bitcoin and I have one more Bitcoin. But the key thing is that this ledger is distributed on over 40,000 computers in almost every country in the world. And every time a transaction happens in approximately 10 minutes, that ledger is updated. All Every single one of these blockchain databases is updated. And if somebody tries to update it and say, Jack actually sent me two Bitcoin, and now he's two less and I have two more instead of the one that he actually sent, all those servers, all those blockchain computers are going to say, no, 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 no. We have the history of all the yep. transactions. That's not what happened. And if one of them's like, no, it is what happened. And I'm the one that controls that node. I'm like, no, it's what happened. The other one's like, yeah, we're kicking no, that out. Sorry. That's not true. And this is really incredible. And people are like, what? Bitcoin has no value. The reason why Bitcoin's valuable is because everybody sees that the system is a freaking scam and can't be trusted. And now we have what's known as a trustless system for transacting money and at the end of the day, transacting information. This is a really big deal. Yeah. So but basically what you're describing there, and this is a good way to help people understand what Bitcoin is as a ledger, is the very first form of accounting was single entry accounting. John spends one tenth ounce of silver, one denarius with me. And I write down received one denarius. And I just keep track of how much money there is. That's 
That's single entry accounting. The next innovation in accounting was double entry accounting. John gave me one denarius. I gave John one sheep or I gave John one basket of corn and it linked to my inventory. And for every in, there was an out. There were two sides of the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is you keep your books. I keep mine. We go to we go to King Solomon, the wise King Solomon. And I say, John owes me money. And John's like, no, he gave me a sheep. I gave him the money. We're done. My books say this and your books say that. And what's, there's a discrepancy now. And that's where banking came in as a trusted third party. But like you said, the banks can't be trusted. Where if we ran things through something like a check, I wrote you a check. You wrote me a check instead of gave me a denarius. I could, then I could say, look, here's here's John's check. He paid me this much. He was supposed to pay me more. He owed me more. Where, where's his check? Where's his bank record? The problem was now we needed to bring in a third party and it's made by humans and they can't be trusted. So we never have what we would call triple entry accounting. Where with what you're talking about, there's thousands and thousands of these nodes, and they all look at that ledger and they say, Jack sent this exact group of Satoshis under this address to John. Now, it doesn't know I'm Jack and you're John. It knows this address and that address. And this piece moved. And then all of them look at it and they all agree. Ding, ding, ding. And that updates that next block. And so what's happened, and if you think about it this way, you stop trying to see Bitcoin as, because I think coin's a bad word. I think Satoshi used things people would intrinsically grab onto and understand. I think he was not just a good coder, a good marketer. He got it to work, and it probably wouldn't have worked if we called it a ledger. But it, what it really is is I have a certain amount of energy that I have acquired through some work, whether it was because I mined it and I used direct work or I made a thing and sold it to somebody else who paid me in Bitcoin. I have this certain amount of energy, and I, this energy is now accounted to me, and I have it. And you can't make a sep you can't copy it. Because energy can't be created or destroyed. That transaction moved that specific block of Satoshis, block's the wrong word, but follow me with it, to you. And everybody agreed that that address now has that and it can never be duplicated. And what we're really doing is we're moving reserved energy in an accountment from one party to the other, which is the only reason money has ever existed anyway. This whole intrinsic value thing of silver and gold Gold is one of the more worthless metals on the planet if you get down to intrinsic value. It's only subjective value. But since it was finite in, in, in quantity and hard to counterfeit and easy to move and easy to break into smaller pieces and easy to refine, it made a good form of beads on the abacus. If I gave you a tenth of an ounce of gold, you could verify it and you knew you had it. So what Bitcoin has done is digitize that concept and that movement and accountability between you and I or me and somebody else, or you and somebody else. And that's, this is why I tell people when a lot of times when they bring up their objection to Bitcoin, I'm like, you know, since I've answered that like 8,000 times now, you have about 100 more hours of research to do before you realize you don't know anything. Because I think my big epiphany was I didn't get Bitcoin, then I got Bitcoin, then I thought I understood Bitcoin. And then about two years later, I realized I didn't have a freaking clue what I was talking about. And I had to go back and go through the whole thing again. It's very, it's so counterintuitive to what we've been conditioned to believe our whole lives. It's very difficult to understand, even though it's actually, in some ways, it's simple. It's, it's very simple in some ways. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. And one thing that's really insightful that Michael Saylor gets, that he nails it. One thing, too, a lot of these Bitcoin maximalists are actually calling, they, like, want the SEC to shut down cryptos. And yeah. you know, fellow anarchists, obviously, we're not for that. So no. I really don't appreciate that. 
Um, but nonetheless, Michael Saylor has contributed significantly to the Bitcoin space, and I appreciate his ability to communicate the value of Bitcoin. And like you said, with the energy thing, that's one of the things that I'm still barely like wrapping my head around because I hear Saylor say it. And it's just kind of like it's one of those things where you got to pause it and roll the video back and be like, yeah. wait a second. What did he just say? And it's like literally because it takes mass amounts of energy to create Bitcoin. Right. So literally what's happened is like these mining computers, there's multiple different players in the network, all decentralized. You got developers that are helping improve the software, the open source software that is the Bitcoin client. Right. You have um, nodes that's hosting a blockchain where you got the whole database of all the transactions from the very beginning. You have wallets and wallet developers. Those are the that's the software that interfaces with the blockchain, creating public address private key combinations and enabling users to sign a transaction with the public address and send Bitcoin to someone else or receive it. Right. And so the mining computers, literally what they're doing is using a bunch of energy to run a really complex ASIC chip. That's an application-specific integrated circuit. It's a mm -hmm. chip that's specifically designed for the SHA-256 algorithm, which is the encryption uh, for the Bitcoin network. And so you got to take all this energy to run this computer really fast, really hot, in order to see who can figure out a magic number first. This number is known as the knots, right? This essentially is... This is how the network is decentralized, because it takes a lot of computing power to solve this puzzle. Right. And so once you solve that puzzle, you then earn the privilege of verifying the transactions, making sure everything's legit and then adding it to the blockchain. And then all the nodes on the network, 40,000 plus, they're all like, yep, that was accurate. We checked it with our mm -hmm. history and it's pretty accurate. So essentially what's taking place here and what you touched upon is we're taking energy, raw energy. And a lot of times it's coming from sustainable, renewable energy, which yep. is pretty cool because now there's a financial incentive to to do this on a more affordable basis. It's market forces at play. We're taking energy and converting it into this digital unit of account. And it can't just be created out of nowhere. It takes physical energy, kind of like mining for gold. That's another reason why gold has stood the test of time because you can't just replicate it. You can't pull it out of thin air. Although an asteroid could crash onto the earth with a ton of gold or somebody could find some giant deposit. And now all of a sudden it's not as finite as we thought it was. Right. Unlike Bitcoin. But you're taking energy, something that takes work, takes money, takes human effort, takes the cooperation amongst market forces to produce these chips, to ship the chips, to set them up, to work with the Texas natural gas industry in order yeah. to leverage that and to help the environment in that case. And then it's converting it into a unit of account, a unit of stored energy, as you referred to it. And I think that's pretty cool because at the end of the day, money represents the energy that we put into something and the value that we hold for something. And it's this it's a big freaking deal. And people got to get over these limiting beliefs and these objections, which are always broken down. And if you can get over your own ego, you'll see like, wow, there's something to this. Maybe Jack and John are, are right. And I should give it a shot. And we've been talking about this before the CBDC thing was yeah. right on the verge of being implemented. Now it's yeah. more important than ever because this is our solution. So we can continue to do business online. We can barter in person. We could trade duck eggs for whatever, right? For the yeah. milk. But to send something online, it's going to be pretty challenging to use PayPal, Venmo, 
the CBDC yeah. system when you're trying to buy some subversive literature or some health product or whatever. Or if it's you go online to- and offline, both though, because the whole reason money was invented. Let's say I, I sell duck eggs, and let's say you had you lived across the street from me instead of uh, four miles south of me, and let's say you had quail. And you're like, Jack, I need two dozen duck eggs. I'll give you some some dressed quail. And, and I was like, my, my wife doesn't eat quail, which is why I don't keep them. Or I have my own quail. Well, now we're at an impasse. Right? The entire reason we came up with a, a means of a, a, an accountability with value exchange is because you don't always have what I need. And mm-hmm. I don't always have what you need. What I have is my ability to create value and you have yours. And I've done something for the value that I have. And if I can transfer that to you, then as long as it's fungible and you can spend it on something else, you don't really care how I got it. If I got my my money selling duck eggs and you don't want duck eggs, you don't care where the money came from. You care that you have the money so you can buy, I don't know, the quinoa that you want or whatever it is. Right. And so that's right. That's that's the whole point of this. And so I agree with the online thing, though, as well. So when I started TSP back in 2008, it was about 2010 when I introduced my membership program, and started selling memberships. From 2010 to about 2017, I probably got five to ten orders a week where people paid me in silver for my membership. That's From cool. that point forward up till about right about when the beginning of COVID started, I got about two to three a month. And now I'm lucky if I see an order for silver ever. Hmm. Because it's because it's a person that decided they wanted to not use the devil's money, right? The U.S. dollar, right? Realized, oh wait a minute, I can just click a button, hit send, and we've done business. I don't have to put it in the mail. I don't have to ship it. And I'll tell you the other thing about the silver, because this is your silver bugs. If you're doing business further than your neighbor, I would say one in ten times that people sent me silver in the mail. Somebody in the U.S. mail system stole the freaking silver out of the mail. I would get envelopes that were cut open and things like that because they would figure out there was something in there. I've never had a Bitcoin transaction or, to be fair, any crypto transaction ever intercepted in the middle of the transaction. No, can't Not be done. Unless there's some kind of uh, insecurity in the system that usually is human error, not Bitcoin error. Yeah, and, and you know, I... I just try. I try to anticipate people's objections, of course. Yeah. So we, you don't say this either. Bitcoin's not the be all end all, and no. there are some risks, right? We're not trying yeah. to say it's absolutely perfect. We're just saying like it's very difficult to screw it up, or it's very difficult to manipulate and control. So I just try to encourage folks to also meet the neighbors, trade with the neighbors, get the silver on the side. Some people in the Freedom Cell chat recently on Telegram are talking about a time bank, right? And it's yeah. like, well, of course you can't have the guy that's been in business for 20 years. His hours worth a little more than the startup. So there you go. But you, you got to figure this stuff out. But it's just like we got to have some backups to the Bitcoin. But, yeah, to be honest, like what I truly believe is like Bitcoin solves a lot of freaking problems and in person or online. It's the ticket. It's the key. But, you know, it's not just learn Bitcoin. It's learn Bitcoin and find other people to do business with Correct. because you got Bitcoin and sure, you know how to send it, but you don't have any person to buy your eggs from or to buy the ammo from or whatever or to buy some land or pay rent. If you're living on a freedom person's property, then you're SOL as well. So it's not the only solution. We also have to build 
what Samuel Edward Konkin, the guy that created agorism, called the counter economy. Absolutely. Trading with guys like me and Jack, linking up with Nicole and her crew, whoever, any freedom person that's willing to do business with you to help you fulfill your wants and needs. And they, like you, are willing to buck the system, even if it comes with a little risk. you got to find and identify those people now because you don't want to get shut out of the economy and not be able to feed your family. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing I'll add to that, because we're going to turn a corner here and talk about some of the things that are maybe not perfect yet. Um, But if you are in business, take Bitcoin, accept it. I mean, that's that that's one of the immediate ways to begin to understand the power of it and the value of it. But the other side of it, especially if you're selling a soft product, right, something you don't have an inventory cost for. There's zero downside. You can immediately convert it to cash. But what you'll find is you'll get customers that you wouldn't have, because I don't know about you, but if I'm choosing between two people and even one's a little more expensive, but they take they take Bitcoin and the other one doesn't, I'm going to I'm going to spend Bitcoin. And I a lot of times, in fact, almost exclusively now, I never spend my Bitcoin. I, I do what I call spending somebody else's Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So I love the strike app. I don't think that they're perfect. But the fact that I can go, oh, John wants to sell me this thing for 100 bucks, deposit 100 dollars. And it says dollars. And I click a thing and I scan your QR code and you get $100 in Bitcoin immediately. Yeah. I never spent my Bitcoin. I haven't created a tax consequence. We did business in Bitcoin. And I know you, unless you need something for your business, you're going to stack that shit and you're not going to spend it. And we're we're transacting, but we're also stacking at the same time. But yeah, it's Gresham's law, right? So even though you're starting with the Bitcoin, you're holding the Bitcoin ultimately that you received, but you're taking your dollars, converting it to Bitcoin to help spread the love for other people. Yeah. You know, I, so I got Live Free Academy. We're hosting the Texas Greater Reset event. My other company, which you had me on back in the day, appreciate yeah. that. Um, a lot of your listeners are, are my clients with Brave Botanicals. This is Kratom. It's a member of the coffee family, helps people with pain, relaxation. Other varieties are good for energy, focus. Other varieties are good for stress. Well, a lot of people take it instead of prescription pain medicine. My wife used to be addicted to Adderall. She quit Mm. Adderall, quit drinking entirely thanks to Kratom, right? A lot of people take Kratom instead of prescription pain medicine. Well, the federal government doesn't like Kratom. So this Operation Choke Point under Barack Obama, they leveraged the banks. The federal government pressured the banks and in turn, they pressured the credit card companies to not have any vendor that does Kratom be able to accept credit cards. I was I had all these hacks. I lost two PayPal accounts, Stripe accounts, Rebecca's PayPal account, my roommate's Square account. Right. I went through 12 accounts. So finally, I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to educate people on how to use Bitcoin and crypto and how to use e-check. E-check is like an electronic check. You transfer it really simple. It's just like mailing a check, but it just goes through digitally. But here's the thing. The e-check thing could be shut down. They could shut my bank account down if they wanted. Nobody can get in between my client and I engaging in a financial transaction using Bitcoin because of the decentralized nature. So there's this there's pie in the sky stuff we talk about. CBDC is coming. You're going to hope this blah, blah, blah. This is a practical example of an entrepreneur leveraging the decentralized value in Bitcoin in order to build a connection with his customers that no one can get in the middle of. And that is really freaking cool. That you're doing right now to solve a problem. Yeah. So instead of sitting here going, oh, I can't do this or I can't do that, you've actually used it to solve a problem. And I've done business with you both ways. I've paid you with e-check and I've paid you with Bitcoin. Both were easy, both worked. But like you said, the banks could come back and say, hey, we're not going to allow e-check payments to this. Now, it's a little bit more complex because you don't have to have an account to accept an e-check with my bank. 
So my bank really doesn't know. It's like I wrote you a check. It's just done electronically. They don't really know who's, but they could figure out how to do that, right? They, maybe you have to get some sort of a token that says you're an approved e-check receiver, but they'll never shut down the Bitcoin side. They can't. It's impossible. And, and yeah. that's something people don't understand. Now, you mentioned Sailor, and that's a good transition to DeFi because this is where we get into some things. I've never said that everything about Bitcoin is absolutely perfect. Uh, some things I even disagree with Satoshi on as far as like not making it anonymous. Maybe I'm wrong because he's obviously smarter than me. And I don't know if it would have survived if it had been completely anonymous from the beginning. But Sailor says, I'm talking about Michael Sailor here for those that maybe don't know him. Um, never sell your Bitcoin. And, and I and I would put an almost in front of it. Almost never. There's always a time you might need to sell an asset for a reason or spend it. But his solution long term is you have this huge stack of Bitcoin. You have this pristine collateral. Borrow against it. Here's my problem. This is my big problem with DeFi. Now I'm taking all the shit coin, 17% interest rate shit, and I'm throwing that out. I'm not including that here. My problem with DeFi is we just spent 10 minutes of this talk so far talking about the importance of self-custody, holding my own keys, holding my own Bitcoin, making sure nobody else can take it. That's not how collateral works. So what is, because I know you've had some beneficial experience with DeFi. What has that been like? And it's not some usurious interest rate and it's not some pilot sky interest rate on the lending side. How has that worked for you? Okay, so there's CFI in the crypto space, Bitcoin space, centralized yeah. finance. And that was like giving your money to Celsius. So you got, you got a whole Bitcoin, you send it over to Celsius and Celsius says, we're going to let you borrow against it. Or in fact, we're going to pay you like nine, 10, 16 percent interest to give us your Bitcoin. And then we're going to lend it out to other people. They're going to make money doing it, so on and so forth. You got to trust a third party in order to do that. It's centralized. A lot of people got wrecked. You know, there's the classic rule. There's all these classic rules. Number one, don't invest more than you're willing to lose. Yeah. Number two, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And there's very few opportunities to earn 16 or 18 percent interest. It's something's not right when that right. happens. Right. So just use your best judgment with all this stuff. But at the end of the day, DeFi uses. Now, here's the challenge. The DeFi that I do is on the Ethereum blockchain. When I started, it was still proof of work, which was much more decentralized than the proof of stake and the Ethereum foundation being able to shut this or that down. But essentially with Ethereum and there's other they're called Turing complete blockchains. That means that they're programmable. So you have these smart contracts so you can develop applications on top of a quote unquote. I'm doing air quotes for the podcast audience, quote unquote, decentralized network. Mm -hmm. What this allows you to do is maintain custody over your coins in that I still am the only one with my private keys using a Web3 wallet like MetaMask. Now, I should say about MetaMask, it was just released that they track people's IP addresses. I don't know if they always did that or if they just started, but that's definitely a ding. But this is some this DeFi thing I'm doing with crypto that I bought on an exchange, in which case I did a KYC. So this is above board stuff that I'm doing. So I don't mind the IP address as much because I'm getting yeah. useful stuff. So essentially, here's what I've done three times now. I took originally I took five thousand dollars worth of Ethereum. Okay. I supplied it to the Compound DeFi platform. That right. involved me sending it from my exchange to my MetaMask wallet, linking my MetaMask wallet with this smart contract, and then providing it, supplying it to the smart contract. Right. 
I earned, you know, 1% interest or so. Sometimes it was 0.5. It fluctuates based on the demand for borrowing a particular currency and the demand for supplying a particular currency, right? And so what I did, bar I lent the 4,000. I lent the 5,000. I borrowed against it. When you borrow against it, they give you a stable coin usually, right? So I used Tether. So I put 5,000 in. I borrowed like $3,500 against it. You gotta, you can't exceed a 75% collateralization ratio. This is when I first started doing it. I learned how to make it more of a conservative decentralized finance thing. And I'll share what I did. But anyway, put my $5,000 of Ethereum in, borrowed like 3,000, 3,500 against it, used that money, took that stable coin. That's a cryptocurrency that's pegged to the United States dollar. They're tokens on the Ethereum blockchain in most instances, converted it to cash and paid a painter to paint our house. Now, I found somebody that was like, hey, I'm a painter. I would have taken the crypto so I could have okay. cut out the conversion. Then over the next month or two, I paid it back in a series of payments. I get to pay it back however I want, right? And I got my supplied crypto out of that smart contract again, and I withdrew it, and everything worked fine. Now, the risk is if the value of that $5,000 that I put in drops – and all of a sudden, the 75% collateralization ratio, it goes underneath 75%. The 3,500 is less than 75% of the 5,000 because the $5,000 worth of Ethereum went down in value. Then you can be liquidated. Those are other players in the DeFi space that go and buy your position out. You keep the stable coins, which is usually less than what you supplied, right? Yeah. It's once it worked. Then we're going to buy solar panels, and this is all useful stuff. It's not speculating or borrowing so I can get a better position in my trade, right? Yeah. Which is very risky, but a lot of people yeah. do it. It's greed that takes over in those instances, and you know the exchanges are willing to play along with that greed as much as possible. Anyway, I did it again to pay for the down payment on our solar system and our Tesla Powerwalls. This time I had like ten dollars or $12,000 in there, and I borrowed $5,000 worth of crypto. By now, I was starting to learn, okay – the market's starting to get a little more volatile. My good friend got wrecked and got liquidated. And I was like, bro, I don't want that to happen to me. So now I had a chunk of Ethereum. I had some wrapped Bitcoin, which is an Ethereum token that's equivalent to the price of Bitcoin. Now, mind you, there's risk in this because these coins can become de-pegged, which means yeah. they're no longer equivalent to one Bitcoin, one wrapped Bitcoin. And this has happened before. So this is not without risk. And But I also included some stable coins to more to make the position more conservative because the stable coins will always be worth $1. That's not true. They could be depegged, but in most instances they will. So I did this again to pay for the down payment on our Tesla. So these were three times. Actually, I did it a fourth time to pay for the deposit when we expanded our office. I currently have about 15K or so supplied. I'm earning interest on that 15K. I'm paying interest on the like three or 4,000 that I have left borrowed from the last time I took a loan out from it. But the thing that's cool is the amount of interest I'm earning is taken off of the amount of interest I'm paying. And at the end of the day, the interest rate generally varies is something around 0.2%. Okay. This isn't without risk, but it's enabled me to take cryptocurrency that I purchased that went up in value to benefit from that capital to in order to do financial exchanges and not have to sell the crypto. And That's according, according to this guy, Kirk Phillips, he's known as the Bitcoin CPA. I did a meet the experts session with him for my members. He said in that process, I just explained there's no taxable events. Whatsoever. No, there's no I know there's no taxable events. The risk is my concern 
and the function of the system. Because one thing that has been hacked is various Ethereum smart contracts. Yep. And I think we're starting to see things done with what are called fediments, which is like a layer on top of lightning with pure Bitcoin. And I, I think there's promise there. We need this to me. We need it on uh, That'd be the best. What's that? We need it on the Bitcoin blockchain. Yeah. Ideally. yeah. Well, I don't know you'll ever have it on the base layer. Sure. But it'll, but every see everything like people don't get this like with lightning, like lightning is actually a smart contract that's secured by the base layer. So it's sitting on top. Mm -hmm. So I think it'll be something like that that will sit on top of things. But there needs to be a way that I can borrow money. I'm using my collateral. If I fail to keep the collateral balance that is on me, the lender should be able to take the collateral. But then I'm not even sure about that. Like. It's not the lender. It's other players in who are, the, who are the lender. The other people are the lender, right? The money has to come from somewhere. Sure, sure. If I borrow money, it's not a. It's not the bank. It's like so. The bank literally writes you a check drawn against nothing, and you're promised to repay when you borrow money from the bank to buy a house. They don't give you two hundred thousand dollars. They don't go here, John. Here's two hundred thousand dollars of our money. They say. We have a reserve. They have the collateral, basically, in, 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 in their bank reserve. And they say your loan is collateralized by your promise and the property itself. Okay. But if the value of your house goes down, you don't get margin called on your house, right? As long as you make the payments, they don't take the house. People have been called on commercial properties. On commercial talk, properties. Uh, happen, Cardone right? talked about that during the big yeah. uh, 2008. But, okay, okay. Those are never 30 year straight mortgages. Sure, though, sure, right? sure. Yeah. It's probably uh, so, we, so if my house went down in value, the bank's not going to say, Jack, hey, we're taking your house because the house went down in value as long as I make my payment every month. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how you balance that because you are using this variable asset as collateral. But I think if you keep the loan to value ratio right, then it should be very secure. So I would never probably borrow more than 5% of what I'm holding that I would collateralize. Oh, and that is the Michael Saylor retirement plan. And it is, I think what people might be more comfortable with thinking this way, because we, I don't think we have all the tools to do it perfectly yet, but I think like you have to have patience. Like Bitcoin is a third of the age of the internet, mm -hmm. well, you know, give it some time. And what's happened in the last couple of years has been amazing. Um, but the rich of the world have bought real estate and borrowed against it. And use the appreciated value to pay back the original debt and create a general rational wealth with that for centuries. And I think that's why a guy like Sailor, once they kind of snap the Bitcoin, they go, oh, this is even better. It doesn't have a property tax. There's no there's no maintenance cost. And I can do the same thing. And what he said is that rich people buy appreciating assets and never sell them. You never sell an appreciating asset unless you're exchanging it for a better appreciating asset. It's one hell of a play. And yeah, so now you're getting into like wealth building opportunities associated with Bitcoin. And it's what the rich folks are doing and it's what everybody should aspire to do. But it's still, as you said, though, we're, it's early. We still don't have the mechanism no. with Bitcoin specifically to borrow against it without having to trust a third party. But we'll get there. And because there's a need for it, the market will provide. And everything's happening so damn fast with the Bitcoin stuff. It's like Everything happens in a year is like 10 years of innovation in the past. So you can expect it. 
and there's this whole thing like a whole a whole Bitcoiner, right? So yeah. ever since Bitcoin was less than a thousand bucks, I've been just impressing upon people. Do everything you can to get to the left of the decimal point, meaning try to do your absolute best to at least get a whole Bitcoin. I've been telling people that since it was a thousand, yeah. five thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty, forty thousand. I 40, think 000. you said that on my podcast when it was about six hundred bucks. You were the first person I ever heard say get to the left of the decimal. Yeah. It was a lot easier when it was six hundred. Now yeah. people think it's unattainable, but at the end of the day, it's like sixteen k now. It could go yeah. down. Could go. It more likely will go up in in time. But you don't have to. A lot of people think you have to buy a whole one at a time. You don't. You can buy fifty bucks worth. You can buy a tenth. You can buy a hundredth, which would be what sixteen dollars or one hundred and sixty. One hundred and sixty bucks. Yeah. You just that's the whole stacking sats thing. And now it's really easy because you could literally buy five dollars worth every day or fifty dollars worth every Wednesday at eleven a.m. using Strike, right? And I think this is what people ought to be doing. Now, if you don't have a lot of money, if you're still struggling to pay your bills. You know, maybe you just do a little bit, a hundred bucks a month uh, or not. Maybe you take that hundred and you invest in upping your skills. So you reach a point where you can buy a thousand dollars a month, whatever. Nobody go in and break your bank if you're struggling financially. Right. But like I said before, learn to use it. But if you're middle income, if you're if you're on the come up, if you're like, I got some extra money, I sold a rental property or whatever. I still think there's immense value in putting your money into this. And I've pulled back at times because as I've done more with my businesses and stuff, I'm making more money than ever before. Mm-hmm. Actually, last year I made more money, even though my businesses did less money, because as the businesses started to make more money, I hired more people and expanded our offices anyway. But there's a period where I was like, maybe I should pull back on the investment because the price is all over the place. And I mean, I should just put all the extra money into the business and into the food production systems. Mm -hmm. Now, with all this food shortage scare and all this crap, I was like, you know what? I'm going to put extra money into some wicking beds. We're going to install the chicken coop finally. I'm going to pay my buddy to help me with some projects on the ranch, right? But I always come back to like, man, there's only ever going to be 21 million of these units. And it's estimated two to three, maybe 4,000 are gone forever because of user error or whatever. Everybody's going to want these as more and more people realize that the system is rigged, fake, phony, a house of cards. This Russia stuff. Now, foreign governments, sovereign nations, they're not sovereign, of course, but they pretend to be. They're like, oh, my God, the Western powers can all of a sudden freeze the assets we have in central banks. Wow. That's a use case for countries like El Salvador, right? And Brazil and all these countries experimenting with it because they can hold that money. It's the same use case that we can have. But on top of that, there's so much practical value as people lose trust in centralized systems. There's only going to be more and more demand for trustless money systems. And we're still way early in Bitcoin adoption. And that's what I always come back to when I hesitate yeah. putting more money into it. It's like, man, in, in five, 10 years from now, people listening to this right now are going to wish that they started stacking more sats instead of sitting and waiting on the sidelines. I, I completely agree. And I think like I love what El Salvador is doing, but don't don't overestimate it and don't underestimate a, a serious nation as far as size doing what they've done, like, oh, Russia, right? If that happens, the the, the game is on. So if any... I'd be World War nation, III if that happens with the big, big country. It, I, I don't know. I think, like, if any major nation puts Bitcoin on the central bank balance sheet, then every major nation will have to use it to compete as well. 
and put it on the balance sheet. And here, it's like, here's the answer. You bring up 21 million. Somebody did the math. If every millionaire in America decided they wanted a Bitcoin, it doesn't work. If you take the stuff that's lost and the stuff that's not mined yet and every American millionaire, just millionaires, all wanted an equal share of Bitcoin, it comes out to like a third of a Bitcoin each of what's actually available on the market right now. That's it. Now, I do think eventually the, the government is going to approve a spot ETF and that opens up all the 401ks, the IRAs. The wall of money there is insane. And I can't see the average person not going it's sitting with a $300,000 401k going ah, 10 grand in Bitcoin, right? Like 10%, 10%, why not? Yeah. And you know, maybe I'm going to, I do my $300 a week contribution or $300 a month contribution. I uh, do 50 bucks of it into Bitcoin or 25 bucks into the Bitcoin ETF. And I can't see other ETFs that are out that now, once that's allowed, then you've got to allow it into other portfolios and then, hedge funds grabbing a little bit or, or what have you. And at that point, that wall of money, 21 million divided by everything, you start thinking that way. And it's, it's very hard. And again, there's, there's a lot of Bitcoin that exists, but it's lost. Cause you, you said earlier, like you lost what, two Bitcoin or something when it was a couple hundred bucks or something like that. Like there's, I wish did. There, there's lost some though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 gone, right? And it's you can't figure out how to get it back. There's tons of people, like even Big Bang Theory did an episode where the nerds freaking mined Bitcoin back in the day, and then they 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 couldn't figure out how to get it back or whatever. And that that kind of thing happened. A lot of it did, because so many people that were involved in the project early were like, it was a novelty, it was thing, it was geek out on it, and you know they figured out how to set up an original mining program because you should be able to mine on a laptop. It, it worked in the beginning. And that's just gone. So there's probably 2 million Bitcoin at least that will never move again because it can't, not because the person won't move it. And I think that it's hard not to, uh, it's not, it's hard not to factor that into the calculus when you're 21 million sounds like a lot, but it's move that across the world with what 9 billion people in it. It's not a lot. And there's, we're still way early. Um, you know, I always like to gather lessons from screw ups in my life so I don't hmm. get myself and it's like, well, everything happens for a reason and I'm not going to let that happen again. But early on, it must have been 2011, the first time I heard about Bitcoin, I was starting to hear murmurs in our freedom space, right? From a lot of like the techno geeky type agorists. And there's this guy named Ethan Lee Vita. And he told me and my ex-wife, you guys, you guys should get into Bitcoin. You know, you can run this program on your laptop and you can mine Bitcoin. This was back when every 10 minutes, 50 new Bitcoin were created. Yeah. And there's a great chance if you run this software that you were going to be one of those winners of that 50 Bitcoin more than once. Yeah. My response was, you know, I've heard about it. Before I get started, I want to learn more. And sure enough, life got the best of me. Shit happens. It wasn't until... 2013, tw late 2012, that I started digging back into it. But by then you had to have graphics cards and it was a lot more competitive. And the lesson I took from that is always at least have a little bit of mental processing power to take advantage of an opportunity sure. when presented to you, because I didn't have that operating power. I need to take this advice today. That's for sure. But um, there's a lot of opportunities out there in this world and you stand to gain the most if you get in on it early. And that would be all you got to do is run a computer program. You don't have to put any money in or buy anything. And yeah. I miss 
that opportunity. Or if you thought, you know, this is worth this is worth 200 bucks. It would have been interesting if you told that guy, like, I don't have time to do that right now. How many Bitcoin will you transfer to me for 200 bucks? Yeah. He probably would have sent you a thousand Bitcoin back then or, or 500 yeah. Bitcoin back then. And, and we would be having this conversation and you'd be on a, a yacht somewhere in, in the Greek Isles or something like going, Jeff, I, I would have you to buy some Bitcoin, right? That's I what would have went to 10. I got $2,000 from my $200. Life's yeah. great. Well, that's the other thing that happened. All the people that got in early, they think are like ballers now. And a lot of them, like, they had $10,000 worth of Bitcoin. It was more money than they ever seen in their life. And they're like, woohoo. And yeah, don't think that everybody that's been around a while. Let's, let's talk a little bit about a pattern that I noticed. Since Bitcoin is introduced, it went up from the year to so year and the year beginning, right? It went up three years and then it would have a fourth year and it would go down about the middle of the halving cycle, and then up three years. And that doesn't mean that one year in, it was back to its all-time high. I mean, it was up from where it started, and then it went back down. And then it went up three years, and then that's that brings us to now, and, that's, and it dropped again. And it's been a three up, one down, three up, one down, very consistent, like something mathematical would be. It would stand a reason that this year we should see Bitcoin close higher than it started on January 1. That's a very set pattern now. However, there is, you know, devil's advocate, steel manning the other side. I think that's important to do. There is something that I believe is about to happen that's never happened to Bitcoin since its inception. It was born in a recession, but it never plowed through a recession. It was born inside a recession. So you're already toward recovery. We've never had an established Bitcoin run into a recession. Do you think it can keep that pattern through this recession as people that need money, what have you, like, or is it going to be a bloody year or a flat year? What do you, what do you think? I know you don't know, but what, what's your gut on this? What happens to Bitcoin in what I think might be the biggest recession that that most living people have ever seen? It's definitely going to be worse than 08. Yeah, I need to listen to your recent podcast I saw on, on this topic um, for 2023. So, you know, past performance is a good indicator of future performance, but it's no guarantee. And if somebody tells you they know exactly what's going to happen, then that's an indicator that they're not a credible person because nobody knows what the hell is going to happen. There's I used to trade altcoins and I'd have the perfect technical analysis set up. There's a breakout. It responded. Now it's going back up to set new highs. And I'm like, I'm going to get in my position. All the books, all the gurus, I'm doing it right. And then some news comes out. Some hack happens. FTX, FTX happens and the whole market comes crashing down. And you lose your position. You're like, I was just set up to make some good money. And then it's all you just never know what's going to happen. But you can use historical knowledge in order to make educated guesses. Right. Yeah. And so there's this if I can I share my screen real quick there. Yeah, Brett? sure. All right. Present. all right. Cool. Cool. So check this out. So I learned about this back when I did my demystifying crypto workshop. This is called the golden bull cycle ratio. I shared it in the chat on your YouTube. I'll share it in the other chats too on the other channels. And so this shows historically what happens with the price after each halving. Mm -hmm. We shared before every four years, the number of Bitcoin that are generated approximately every 10, 10 minutes with every new block gets cut in half. So as you can see, after each halving around 2012, there's a pretty raging bull market. Yep. And then there's a bear cycle. Yep. And they have these 53 bar. These are weak. These are weeks. Right. So each yeah. one of these uh, candlesticks represents a week. And so as you can see, historically, we got the same pattern going on. 
There's a bear market. It bottoms out. And then leading up because the market bakes in the it knows. anticipation that the the halving is going to happen. There's a minor bull market. And then after the halving, boom, because everyone's like scarce. There's no there's fewer Bitcoin being created. And the markets, you know, it's rational, but it's also irrational. But people know that this means there's less Bitcoin to be had. And so, boom, it it shoots up. It reaches the top and then another bear. Then it subtly brings itself back up, right? And then we come to the third halving, which happened a couple years ago. And so I pay for this account. So you can hit this play button. It'll catch back up to time to where we are today. So check this yeah. out. Hit play. Boom. Sure enough, after the halving, another bull cycle. And as you can see, this is the bear period, which yep. sure enough, we're going through a bear period. So presumably... After the next halving, which will happen sometime in approximately 2024, we should experience another great bull cycle. Now, like you said, there is a recession. When I first did this big Bitcoin two-day workshop in April of 2021, I was telling people Bitcoin is seen as a hedge against inflation. Smart money is starting to put their money into Bitcoin in order to protect their corporate treasuries, for example. And this was the case for a little while. That's what we were seeing as the inflation started heating up. But then what seemed to be the case was that as tech stocks and more speculative, high risk, high reward stocks were going down, so too was Bitcoin. And it kind of became clear that the market was was seeing Bitcoin as some speculative way to make a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. And when more risk gets introduced in the market where there's uncertainty and there's the risk of recession or there is a recession, people move out of the speculative investments into more sound conservative investments, right? Like treasuries, T-notes and stuff like that. So there's a possibility of that happening. I'm hoping and we can play a role in this if you have a, a network or if you're an influential person. I'm hoping that people really start to see that this system is a freaking scam. And here we have perhaps the most sound money that's ever existed. And we can have a decoupling of that fear of that move away from the risky Bitcoin because it's we it's all crazy and new and weird. Um, I'm hoping that people will see that. I don't know that they will. And only time will tell. And that's why if you're new to Bitcoin, don't invest more than you're willing to lose. If you wouldn't put it on the table in Vegas, don't do it. <laughs> and if you don't gamble, then you figure out what your table in Vegas is, right? The money you would take and blow on a dinner and not think about it the next day, you can spend that. Don't liquidate your kid's uh, trust fund, your, your you know, uh, not a trust fund, fund, but a college fund or whatever <laughs> to buy Bitcoin. On the inflation hedge, my response to that has always been how long are we talking? Ten years, it's absolutely inflation. As this this week, it is not an inflation. Yeah, yeah. Some bad piece of news can come out and drive the price down. I actually kind of look at it different, though. I see a speculative value and a utilitarian value is the way I describe it. So we're in the trough right now, and I see that as pretty close to the utility value. How valuable is it that I can transact with you? As far as Bitcoin is concerned, it's about sixteen to $17,000 a unit right now. With what is it? Sixteen Bitcoin a, a, a block being produced as new Bitcoin. Is that where we are? Is it sixteen? No, it's at uh, 6.25. 6.25. 6.25 Bitcoin new yeah, every right. day, or every every block. Ten so every ten minutes, there's six more Bitcoin in the world than there was ten minutes ago. Every day, and what's going to happen is that's going to go to three point one two five then in twenty twenty four the next having, and that's what we would call a supply shock. 
that utilitarian value is relying on that supply. Enter into that people with money that go, oh, shit, I want more money from the retail investor to the big time trader. They play this pattern and then Elon Musk uh, puts it on a Tesla balance sheet or something. And my nephew, I've been telling him to buy this shit forever, calls me up. How do I buy it? And it's like 56 grand. I'm like, dude, I don't know that you should right now. Like, And, and so then we get a speculative value pushed up by the FOMO. Yep. And then we get a lot of people just go, wait a minute, this worked. And I'm not taking this approach, but I don't see it as necessarily wrong that a person who just made $25,000 of profit takes their profit or takes a part of their profit. So there's profit taking, there's short sellers, there's all this stuff that pushes it back down. But what happens is we have this run up and as it comes back down, adjusting to that supply shock that occurred previous to the run up, we find the new utility value. And it's interesting to look at the Bitcoin chart that you just had up. I think you switched to a different page, but if you look at it and you take the, 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 the big runs out, and you look at the utilitarian value, it's like this. For those that can't see me because you're on the audio, it's a, it is a very, it's actually a very consistent. It doesn't have the volatility in it anymore. When you take away those irrational moments of exuberance, it connects very lin linearly like something mathematical would. And so I think you're seeing market forces create this. And that's why I tell people, if you want to buy someone that's way, way up, go ahead. DCA is kind of the best, but I really buy in the accumulation trough, and I, I don't know how many more of those you get, but we, we're in one right now. Did you want to put that up there, too? Yeah, I got it up there. Okay. Here's oh, yeah, I need to hit present there. there you go. Yeah, so as you can see, like Jack was saying, um, you can just whoop. It's a nice, even line. In fact, yeah. here in TradingView, I can actually draw a line on a different uh, thing here. So let me pull up Bitcoin where we got it, where we got it. Let me search for BTC USD. This is TradingView. It's a great platform. I used to use it more when I traded. Oh, these are my alerts. Sorry. That's all right. Uh, oh, here we go. BTC USD. There it is right there in our face. All right. So check it out. So this, of course, is a let me take off all these crazy um, technical analysis indicators. OK, so this is a day. Every candlestick equals a day. I'm going to pull it back to every candlestick equals a week. Okay, and I'm going to adjust my screen here. Let me get rid of all this stuff, too, down here and this stuff here. Okay, so here we go. We got 2019 all the way over to 2023. Let's take it back even further. Let's see a really big picture chart. And everybody's freaking out, but you're like, you got to zoom out on the chart, bro. Yeah. And so as you can see, right, so a trend line is where you kind of trace the bottom, like kind of the average price, right? So. I'm just look. I'm just pulling this right, right yeah. out, right. So you know, this kind of looks like a trend line to me. We got this crazy period in 2017 when retail investors started getting into it because of FOMO and the media was talking about it. Some corporations were ahead of the curve, and then you got 2020. They start cranking out a bunch of money. The uh, Trump's issuing all this money to folks and big corporations and Michael Saylor, of course, MicroStrategy, all these companies start saying like we should actually look into holding Bitcoin because we're really concerned with what they're doing to the dollar. And of course, the media picks up Tesla. Elon Musk is extremely influential. That picks yeah. up, right? Oh, right there. That's what my net that day right there is what my <laughs> nephew called. <laughs> right oh. at the first peak of the double shoulder, right? Yeah. And I always told folks like, you know, it's really an all time high now. So I'm not going to tell you not to get involved. Maybe just buy a little bit so you can at least get your foot in the door. Don't go all in now because it's going to correct, right? Everybody likes to buy high and sell low. And it's just emotion. You got to get your emotion out of it. But anyway, you know, interestingly enough, the price shot up because of Elon. 
in large part. And it shot down because of Elon talking about the environment and saying we're not yeah. going to accept it for Teslas, right? But here we are, like you said, back we're to back a more natural, healthy price discovery. And I have a feeling that as time goes on, this trend is going to continue this way. No guarantee. I no. think more than likely it's going to go this way up to 300,000-ish, then it's going to go down to 3,000-ish. And so, as you said, now is a good time to get involved. It could go down to 10, 11, 12 as possible. If that happens, people are going to buy it up just the same as when it goes up. People yeah. sell it. So the price goes down when there's more people selling than there are buying. The sell the buyers are competing to do business with the sellers. When there's more people buying than there are selling, the buyers are like, I'll buy it for more. No, I'll buy it for more. The price goes up. So when it goes down, a bunch of people, me and Jack included, are going to oh, yeah. gobble it up and the price will probably go up. But Back to the golden bull ratio. This 2024 year is yeah. probably going to be pretty magical. Maybe not, but probably so. And this that's all happening. Drew, that's where I see it going long term. When we get into that 2024 range, and I'm retarded, I'm, I'm moving my cursor on it like people can see it. Um, <laughs> it will it will shotgun up like that again, and it will probably look much bigger than that that huge run up. I think the people that are new don't understand is it looks like it's it went so off pattern in that period. If you were to shorten down to like one of the first bull cycles, it looks just as dramatic. Just the number was smaller. So when you compare the two, it doesn't look big anymore. I don't know if you can do that where you, you can pull back down if you get what I'm saying. Like, yeah, see, see how, how dramatic that looks now right there? Yep. And, and if you cut the front end off of it, if you it went to where you limited it to those four years. It happened in 2013, too. Yeah. And you can't even see it. Right. That's the thing. You look back at 2013, you can't even see it there. Until John zooms out enough, it was an incredible run up. Yep. And it's just done this over and over. And so the original question was, I have no doubt about what is going to happen in 2024. 2023 should end higher than it starts. But it's going to be interesting to see how that that three to one pattern is tested. Because basically we're right about halfway through that the, the four year cycle now and it's kind of there where you tend to bottom and start trending upward and that's why that cycle's working i'm just not sure one other thing i want to talk about let me get my screen up there now um the lightning network this was something that had a lot of naysayers i'm a big fan of fountain my podcast is on there and what i thought was most important impressive is fountain just released their end of year statistics and so there's 10,647 lightning-enabled podcasts on Fountain. 2.1 full Bitcoin changed hands on Fountain this year. That's how much money people that listen sent to podcasters on Fountain. But there were 6.7 million transactions on a network that naysayers say nobody uses. They did 6.7, and many of these transactions were one Satoshi transactions. So people will stream one sat a minute while they listen to a podcast to exchange value with the podcaster. This is a very small player in the, in, in the world of lightning right now, way smaller than somebody like a strike that enables lightning transactions. To me, this is amazing that they can do that. And I think I've often said defending lightning, I account for thousands of transactions a day. And I think people think I'm talking out of my butt. It's not a lot of money. It might be 50, a hundred bucks that in the individual day. Some days it's $5, but it's still a tremendous number of transactions that are instantaneously settled. And, and so I think that one of the things that's really killed the case for a lot of the cryptocurrencies out there is the Lightning Network, because none of them can do that. 
None of them can do that at that speed integrated that way. It's really turned Bitcoin into what we've always been promised, which is programmable money. And I start looking at the currency of information. And I look at things like the concept. I've talked about this before. Somebody needs to build this because I don't have time or the, the talent to do it. A, a, a Waze traffic app mm. that's monetized with Satoshi's on the Lightning Network. So when I'm hauling ass three weeks from now down to Bastrop and I see a little whoopee light thing come up on the app and somebody rats out the cop that doesn't pull me over. Oh, yeah. So my last trip happened three times and I didn't get a ticket that I can say, hey, I appreciate that this guy just ratted out the cop and I can send him a dollar's worth of sats. Like those kind, and, and I, I really think that if you have a smartphone, look at the apps on it, and if it can be monetized, within five years it'll be monetized or it'll be gone. You know, because why would you create a currency for people to exchange value? Yeah, if you can do it, might as well. You know who's going to send a lot of Satoshis for that app? Drug traffickers are going to reward the hell out of the folks that are identifying the cops, you know? And like, I don't have a problem with that personally, nonetheless, but... You know, I was skeptical about the about the Lightning Network um, because back in, I, know, I guess it was 2015, 2016, there's this whole block size debate. And so mm-hmm. the Lightning Network solved a problem. And the problem was each Bitcoin block, that is the collection of all the transactions that took place. It's digital. Each Bitcoin block was only able to store one megabyte worth of information. And so when we had, when Bitcoin was early on and we were, you know, handing out half a Bitcoin to people. Hey, you want to learn about Bitcoin? We would send people half a freaking Bitcoin. Wow. Yeah. And I used to send 0.05 Bitcoin, which is like 20 or 50 bucks at the time for Christmas gifts. And a lot of family members held on to it. And now they're like, oh, my God. That was like 2,500 bucks a couple Christmases ago. Anyway, um, there's this debate. It's like, okay, there's more people that want to use Bitcoin. There's more transactions taking place in one given 10-minute period than can fit on a one megabyte block. So these two camps quickly emerged. One said, hey, why don't we just increase the size of the block to two megabytes, four or eight megabytes? Yeah. The other camp said, no, if the blockchain gets too large in size as far as how much storage it takes on a computer and how much processing power it necessitates, it's going to create centralization in the network in that you're going to have to have more sophisticated servers and use more energy. It's going to cost more. So there's going to be fewer people that can host a node. Therefore, the network will be more centralized. Now, there's a lot of chicanery that took place during this period. And unfortunately, on Reddit, Bitcoin Reddit and the Bitcoin forums, which were like the predominant place where a lot of the stuff got hashed out, pun intended, um, they would actually censor, quote unquote, big blockers, the people that were pushing to mm-hmm. inter- Block size. Now, there was some chicanery and some blocks. There could be a conspiracy here. Likely there is. Um, But ultimately what happened was the big blockers said, you know what? We're going to take our toys and we're going to play in another sandbox and we're going to fork away from the Bitcoin blockchain. The history is going to be the same, except on this particular time, starting in 2015 sometime, I believe, we're going to start a new cryptocurrency called Bitcoin Cash, and it's going to have a bigger block size. And at this time, I was like, Something's up. Maybe there's a conspiracy to take away the peer-to-peer cash nature of Bitcoin by these large corporations like Blockstream, who had Larry Summers, the former head of the Department of Treasury, who is a big architect of the bailout. Mm-hmm. He's on one of the he's part of the advisory board. So maybe there's something there. I don't know. That's just speculation. Maybe there's something there. I was like, I'm a big blocker. This whole layer two thing. The other guys were like, let's build a network. 
let's build a layer on top of the blockchain where mm -hmm. we can send and receive small amounts. You, you beat it to death about what that's all about, why it's valuable. And so for the longest time, I was like, you know what? I'm a big blocker. I'm going to teach people about Bitcoin cash. I'm going to teach people about Bitcoin, hold wealth, mm -hmm. like your reserves, your savings account, your investment account, basically. But when you're going to send some payments here and there, then use Bitcoin cash, right? Still takes 10 minutes to confirm. But it wasn't until I started seeing applications like Fountain, and this was more recently, in large part, yeah. you influenced the heck out of me, Jack. So like you start talking about it and I'm listening to some of your talking points. I'm like, he's kind of got a point. But when it comes to apps like Fountain and people sending one Satoshi, which is point zero 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 one Bitcoin, yeah. which is worth like, I don't even know how to say it, maybe like a one sixteen thousandth or one sixteen millionth million well there's twenty one quad there's twenty one million bitcoin and there's twenty one quadrillion Units. satoshis that's yeah. a way to get your head around how small one is yep it's worth like point zero 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 one six five pennies of a yeah. penny it's tiny yeah. so yeah. like now, I used to be like, you know, the, the computing power is going to evolve and, you know, we used to have this giant floor of a building to have one megabyte. Now we yeah. have terabytes on a hard drive, yada, yada, yada. But when you start talking about people's, how many transactions was that again, Jack? 16 million or something? 16, let me, let me pull it back up. I, you I don't talking about Twitter tips. 6.7 million 6 .7 transactions million. just on Fountain. Just on Fountain, one app, people are tipping, sending this, strike that, buying a dollar a day worth. That is going to really increase the size of the blockchain fast. And that's something I didn't anticipate back then. It being yeah. integrated with social media, it being integrated with the Waze type app. And that does seem prohibitive as far as the data that you would need to be able to store on a server in order to maintain that ledger. And so I do see value in it. Also, at the end of the day as well, it's there. It's working. I've used it. Yeah. It seems like a pretty solid system. Now, the challenge that I still have is the possibility of the Department of Treasury insisting that folks that set up Lightning node channels be yeah. registered as a money service business because they are enabling the transfer of money from one party to another, right? Yeah. Um, now, of course, that can be overcame by hosting your own node, which right. all comes back to the whole self-custody thing. Right. So yeah. it's all about people learning this technology and as many people as possible implementing it in the decentralized way that it is. But you point out as well, like, OK, you can still use the Bitcoin blockchain to send a thousand dollars to your buddy yeah. or to store your wealth. But you're using the Lightning Network to tip this and to send these small amounts on, on a small transactions. I'm already seeing kind of the white flag start to come up from the government, realizing like we can't even the uh, the proposed crypto legislation. A lot of it sucks but has like a de minimis transaction value in it under 600 bucks. Uh, a magic number. Which I guess they have uh, attributed to the same thing with over 600 for 1099Ks on, on you know, when soccer mom 576B sells her kids <laughs> used clothes to on Etsy and she makes more than 600 bucks, they got to have it reported. So they use the same number because it's impossible. It's impossible to transact. And one of the, one of the few good true precedents in U.S. law is the government cannot require a person to do a thing that's undoable. Right. So like they could require registration, but they can't require you to track six point seven million individual transactions, many of which are sub one penny because it's not doable. You can't make a request that can't be fulfilled. I guess they could outlaw, but then they, then they would just why not just outlaw Bitcoin? Why not just outlaw all cryptocurrencies? 
Um, and that's what some people will say is going to happen. I just I don't see it because I think the market has now adopted it and, and, and spoken. And I think that the more it becomes entrenched, the harder it becomes to push it back into the bottle, the genie out of the bottle, so to say. So when you start thinking about, well, how would you how would you use this? Right now, we have apps that tell you where to go get something to eat. What if you had an app that when you showed up at a place, there was a hour and a half wait, but the restaurant you were at could communicate with another restaurant that would give you a credit of, let's say, $5 worth of Bitcoin to leave that restaurant because you're never getting a table and come to their restaurant while they have space? What if there was a way to rate servers and thank the person that rated the server so you knew who to ask for when you went there? They were just in the restaurant space. What if there was a way that in Texas you have to have a TBAC uh, bartender certification to attend bar? But if you have that, you can attend bar anywhere. So mm-hmm. that a bartender could walk into a bar that's backed up and say, yeah, I got beep and scan his certification and scan his, his, his lightning wallet, step behind the bar, dig that bar out of the hole that they're in, get his portion of tips on lightning and go, hey, I'm out. See you. I just did that for 15 minutes or whatever it is. Like it's almost unlimited what could be done. And you mentioned Bitcoin Cash. And the only thing that I found exciting about Bitcoin Cash, I mean, I literally call it Bitcoin trash since it started, was something called SLP, which was Simple Ledger Protocol. And it was supposed to do all this shit and it never did. And I think it I don't know that it couldn't. It didn't get adopted. Mm. Bitcoin Cash didn't get adopted. There was no way it was going to build on SLP or since Bitcoin really got adopted. And I mean, I think Coinbase has a thing called Coinbase Wallet, which I don't trust, but it's supposed to be their software wallet. You're not on the exchange, that type of thing. They just took Bitcoin Cash off it. Yeah. And they said it was because no one uses it. Now, I'm not going to say no one uses it because people said that about Lightning and pissed me off, but (laughs) it's not highly used. Well, the market reflects the liquidity, so the price yeah. got shot to hell. I just saw a screenshot I shared. It was probably like when Bitcoin was like a thousand. It was like fourteen thousand. I was like, Bitcoin's going all the way up, and yeah. uh, you see Bitcoin Cash, like the number three most valuable b- cryptocurrency. That's yeah. not the case anymore. And at the end of the day, the market speaks. And there's all these, you know, Bitcoin SV, Satoshi's Vision, Zealots and stuff. And they're just like, Lightning Network's a scam. Bitcoin's a scam, blah, blah, blah. My Bitcoin is the original Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. And I felt that way about Bitcoin Cash for a little while because the peer-to-peer thing, whatever. But the market freaking speaks and people can whine and cry about the market all they want. But ultimately, the market has more credence than your opinion. And the market really likes Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to pull some up here in just a second. Let me uh, stall for a bit. This This is Bitcoin Cash. Move from stream priced in Bitcoin. Uh, present what the hell? Stop screen. Present share screen. Brave have right here. Share. There you go. That's what the market says in Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash. So to be clear, that is if you price Bitcoin Cash in Bitcoin, how much Bitcoin you get for one Bitcoin Cash. So you can see where the the absolute tumble where kind of reality set in. And from that point on, it was over. And yeah. that's, that's as far back as it'll go. That's a, that's a hundred percent all the way back. It's, it's a dead thing. And, and Satoshi vision's worse. There's, 
the 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 joke among maximalists on BSV now is that you could you could uh, 51% attack it with a couple uh, uh, Commodore 64s. And it's it's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's not that much. You might have to add a couple CNCs wired into it to do it. That's why network effect is so important because there's so much computing power. There's so much money. There's so many – the developers have higher salaries because people find utility, and this network effect – is is critical you know everybody's faulting elon they're like elon's making twitter is this wechat so they can usher in the central bank digital currency and social credit score blah 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 but what if elon connected the lightning network like jack wanted to do to twitter and now not only can you tip folks for saying something clever but you can also send each other money through twitter i mean that'd be pretty we know elon likes bitcoin maybe he'll use dogecoin i don't know that's at least more decentralized than a lot of the other ones yeah he is weird with the Doge thing, but I think he's weird for the sake of weird. Yeah, at times. he likes the attention. People tell me because I'll point out things he's doing that I agree with. They say, don't trust him. I said, who the hell said I trusted him? Yeah. I, I, I don't trust a lot of people and still acknowledge that what they did is good or influential. Yeah, everybody's so I, black or white. Yeah. It's either yeah. good or bad. It's, they're either they're New World Order or they're a freedom fighter. There's yeah. no self-interested people well, I think Elon, my theory with Elon, it's possible he's a New World Order plant and yeah. all of this is a con and we got to trust him because he's doing this free speech thing on Twitter or he said yeah. this clever thing or that. But it's also possible the dude is so driven to make humans a multiplanetary species that he's willing to get in bed with the Department of Defense because he's got to get the yeah. AOK from them to send yeah. ships out you of the orbit or whatever. Uh, but I think there's a lot of indicators that this guy is not bought and paid for. He is just a one-man wrecking crew that's effective as hell. He just lost a huge chunk of his wealth for this Twitter project. People are selling Tesla shares like left and yeah. right because the CEO's all obsessed and goofing off on Twitter. He's not goofing off, actually. The dude's like pretty doing a pretty good job when it comes to disrupting the narrative and the agenda. So I think what's more likely is he's just so damn committed to his goal of being Earth being a multiplanetary species that he's willing to do some things that aren't necessarily libertarian or that our community would, would frown upon, but he's doing it in order that's what to reach works. That's the way he's I look an at it. Dude. And I know people that have worked directly with him and for him and they hate him. But the reason <laughs> yeah. they hate him is he will drive you into the ground if that's what it takes to get what he wants. Like he literally doesn't understand the word no. Uh, I have a friend that was part of a huge project for him. And so he would say, I need this by this point. And they said, well, we can't do it. And he would literally say, how much money do you need to do it? Tell me, but you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where he's coming from. So it's not whether you trust him or not. It's I have a goal. Here's what gets me there. And I'm going to take that goal. And I think the Twitter thing, I think the dude really does believe in free speech. But the, the thing about free speech is we have to, everybody has their own version of what that means. Sure. So he would say that if you're if you're doxing my aircraft that my family's on on my platform, I'm not going to let you do that. Is that anti free speech? I'm not going to fight that one, but platform. I wouldn't let you dox my air, my private airplane with my wife on it. Yeah, on your platform, on your podcast, you wouldn't allow yeah, that. Would that's the thing. It's my platform. It's my podcast. What I'm looking for out of any any platform, right, any protocol that's run by a, an authority like a Twitter is state your freaking rules mm. and then follow your own rules. Don't have I have one set of rules for John and one set of rules for Jack. Yeah. 
the other thing that makes me have some confidence in him, I know we're off topic a little bit here, but the shit that he's released is is damning as hell. It is, I mean, it is, anybody who hasn't really looked at the Twitter files yet, you should, because I don't know that if he was a plant, he would be going that far. And the Fauci files come out this week. You know, yeah, the factor, a lot of my good, I, I get a lot of flack. I drive a yeah. Tesla. I got Tesla power walls. Yeah. I got the Tesla satellite on order. Right. It works. And I'm inspired by Elon. He inspires me as an entrepreneur. And that's what people don't get. I'm like, sure. He's, he's in bed with the DOD. His Neuralink thing. If you listen to his Joe Rogan podcast, he's like 10 steps ahead, anticipating AI becoming so powerful that he wants humans to not have to waste the t- computing time to type. He wants us yeah. to be able to interface directly. I'm not getting a Neuralink. No, I think I said this with you though. Like if I was yeah. paralyzed, I'd consider it because paralyzed, being paralyzed would suck. I think but it's if totally. Oh, if I'm paralyzed. And Neuralink makes a thing that'll make me walk. Yeah. Plug that shit in. But, <laughs> but um, uh, oh, so people that in my community, I get a lot of flack. And so he's doing all this Twitter stuff. And the refrain is, oh, we already knew all that. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, come on. You didn't value Edward Snowden or Kelsey yeah. Manning or whatever they're going by. Um, v- dropping all that stuff because it confirms what the conspiracy theorists knew. And it yeah. makes it easier for the mass man or woman to lose faith in the government. And as an anarchist, I appreciate I'm all it. about it. We need more people to lose faith so they can step in and be like, well, what, what's the alternative? Because I can't trust this system anymore. Same thing with the money system. They're racketeering, they're frauding, they're laundering money for the drug cartels. They're not playing by the same set of rules. The rich folks, the big corporations get a pass while FTX gets a pass and gets treated like the darling while our good friend Ross Ulbricht is in locked away for multiple life sentences. Yeah. People are starting to see that. And it, whenever they see the fraud and the fraud is confirmed with facts, it makes it easier to recruit them to the agorist cadre. And that's yeah. really cool. And I appreciate Elon Musk for that. Because it makes it easier. Like the, the thing I said yesterday, and I think you'll like this, is politics is a game designed by sociopaths, uh, psychopaths, run by sociopaths, and played by fools. <laughs> that, that's, that's the game. And, and, and by the way, played by fools, I think people think I'm talking about voters. Uh, yeah. But when I say fools, I mean the Congress clowns and the bureaucrats. The, the sociopaths or the psychopaths that designed it is the technocracy, the oligarchy. The people that run it are the lobbyists and the key players within what we call the deep state. There's your sociopaths. The fools are the clowns on the floor that they're voting and fundraising. They're freaking fools. My biggest problem with most of the bureaucrats and the politicians is they're incapable of doing things right, and they bear no consequence for being wrong. And that's why I think, so when I got into Bitcoin, much like you, it was like number go up. That's all that matters. Number go up. Get rich. Number go up. Number go up. Somewhere around 2018, 2019, it really clicked for me. Freedom go up. The the number is irrelevant to me. Long term, I know where it goes. It is what it is. The ability to hold your property in in a way that is unconfiscatable. And, you know, anybody out there that says that's bullshit, I'll give you a public address. And if you can get the Bitcoin off that public address, I'll multiply that number by 10 and give you that much cash. Go ahead, do it. Pick the right atom out of the known universe. Go ahead. It's, I don't want to beat that up again. Real quick, 
one more thing, and this is the one thing people say that I go, yeah, they could do that. And and I wonder what we would do if they did or they moved in this direction. You can't stop Bitcoin. Anybody says you can, I'm, go do your 100 hours of research and then we'll have a conversation. What they could do is incredibly tightly regulate the on-ramps and off-ramps for conversion to U.S. dollar or dollar to Bitcoin. What, what are your thoughts on how the market would react to that, how the community would react to that? So I love our audience and our overlapping audience, this whole freedom community, because like anytime I'm like, I'm doing a webinar on Bitcoin, I'm doing a, a workshop on crypto, everybody's like, tell us how to buy it and sell it privately without doing KYC. And that's yeah. the, the common thing. How do we do it? How do we do it? How do we do it? And so I'm like, these are my people, right? So at the end of the day, the best, the best way to receive Bitcoin, like you already said it earlier, the best way to get Bitcoin Without KYC, that's where you have to scan your driver's license. It's part of the Bank Secrecy Act. They check your identity against a database of known terrorists and yeah. uh, criminal organizations. Really, they want to keep tabs on you, of course, because they're leveraging that for the IRS and such. But the best way to avoid all that is to receive Bitcoin in exchange for goods and services. All right. But that's why I hammer, you hammer the importance of community. We have to build the counter economy. That's the counter establishment economy. It's anything that's not these white markets, the regulated markets. It's our little underground thing. We have to build these networks so that we can create liquidity within our own communities. So if you want to buy Bitcoin to send it to the guy and he's blacklisted from the CBDCs or whatever, you come to Jack's workshop or you come to the local Freedom Cell meetup or a Bitcoin meetup and you buy it like this, handing over cash or handing over some labor or some duck eggs or whatever, and the person sends you some Bitcoin, vice versa. If you want to sell Bitcoin, you do just the same. We're still in the process of building that out. I wish we could build it out faster. But there's these incredible services that most people use. In fact, one of my good buddies, that's a total agorist. He was actually my very first Bitcoin trans. His name is Derek Burroughs. He's a total agorist. He doesn't pay taxes. He's outside the system. He lives in Mexico. He doesn't hide that. So I feel yeah. okay sharing it. Um, my first Bitcoin transaction was paying him because even back in like 2015, he was an agorist with no bank account. It might have been 2014. I was doing the Liberty Beat Radio News Service. He wrote articles for me. And he's like, hey, man, I don't have PayPal. I don't have a bank account. I can't take a credit card payment. So I was like, well, shit, I'll go to Western Union, wait yeah. in line, pay 10 percent, 8 percent on my money and send you the money. Total pain in the ass. I was like, why don't I just do a Bitcoin transaction? He was able to receive it, sell it to somebody in his local community without the government having any idea about it. And I thought that was pretty cool. Now he uses a platform called localmonero.co. Localmonero.co specializes in Monero. There's also localcryptos with an S, localcryptos.com. Both of these platforms are peer-to-peer -peer exchanges that link up buyers and sellers, and there's an effective reputation system. Don't do business with anyone less than a 98% reputation. Don't do business with anyone less than 250, 500, or 1,000 transactions under their belt, and you can effectively buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, Monero, whatever. I would avoid everything but Bitcoin and Monero for this purpose uh, by mailing someone cash. There's some risk involved. Meeting someone in person. There's some risk involved. You can even use uh, Zelle, these interbank transfers. You can do a wire transfer, too. They don't exactly know what you're sending it for unless you're doing a big money, that big amount they may ask. But there's platforms that enable this. And so, the, again, the rule of thumb is if you're feeling a little insecure and you're, you're new to this, 
start by buying a hundred bucks worth. If it ends up being a scam or you mess it up somehow, you're not totally out. But I've held people's hands on consultations and stepped them through this process. So even though it's much more convenient to use Coinbase or Kraken or Strike, uh, if you want to get around the KYC requirement, which effectively ties your identity to your public address and on a public and transparent blockchain like Bitcoin, you can then trace the history of that transaction after you purchase it, even when you send it out of the exchange. There's ways around that, of course, as well. But the best way is to buy it in person or leverage one of these platforms like localmonero.co or localcryptos.com. And I would add to that, like there's absolutism and then there's pragmatism. So one of the things you can do is you can manage, you can get really sophisticated using running your own node, managing individual UTXOs this way and all, but you can simply have a different wallet. And I buy crypto all the time and I'm KYC in that crypto and I have that crypto and I have no tax consequence. I'm not trying to hide anything. I might want to leverage that crypto someday. I, I, I honestly believe there's a high probability that our banking system will eventually accept reality and the, the sailor retirement program will work. And you want the most pristine, lily white above board Bitcoin you can have if that ever becomes available. So if you have one wallet that you receive payments into and one wallet that you transfer your purchases into, you keep that separate. And there's a lot of both. I don't want to get into, you know, full on playing with obfuscation today, but there's a lot of things that you can do. Simple tools create what we would call probable deniability. So if you go into strike and you put a hundred dollar deposit into strike and then you send that hundred dollars to somebody in Bitcoin, you have not created a taxable event for yourself. You haven't because you didn't, you didn't convert anything. If you send it to yourself, you still haven't created a taxable event. You've just you've just effectively you bought Bitcoin when you did the transaction. Well, if you send that transaction as a lightning transaction to a custodial but non-registry lightning wallet, let's say wallet of Satoshi, and then you send it to your hardware wallet back on an on-train trans transaction, I'm not saying the NSA can't track that if they know to look for it, but it's actually far more effective than a lot of like the coin join shit and stuff like that, because a coin join transaction is so patternable that it sticks out on the blockchain. All that transaction I just described is, is money moving from lightning back to ch on chain. And so there's ways that you can make it a little bit more murky, I guess. But mm -hmm. to me, I just buy Bitcoin and keep it in one group of UTXOs, which are addresses. And I receive Bitcoin to another group of UTXOs, on a different wallet, it makes it easy to manage and you don't forget what you're doing. And so I have my, and I don't even look at it as hiding. I have my Bitcoin that's kind of like a bank account in that you can, it can be seen that it's mine. And I have this other Bitcoin that it's like the stuff under the mattress, except it's all way more secure than that. And I think one of the things people need to understand is Bitcoin is not a private network, but it's a secure network. Security and privacy are different. If you think if you had a, uh, a house, with two foot thick bulletproof walls made out of glass that you could see through, it would be incredibly secure, but not, but somebody could come by with a 50 cal and they ain't getting you, right? But it's not very private. Bitcoin's like that house and the wall is smoke glass. It's a little harder to see in, but you can, you can track things and we need to be aware of that, but I don't think it's necessarily a problem. I just think it needs to be. I think where you get in trouble is when you think it's completely anonymous and it ain't. 
like Ross Ulbricht. Right. Because even yeah, because even if I pay you and you're not KYC to that Bitcoin, I am. If I bought it from Coinbase and the more times it moves, the less that the more obfuscation that there is. But did I send it to myself three times or did I send it to you and you sent it to Bill? There's no way to know. And it's I don't know. I, it's it's the it's the thing on the bottom of the list that I worry about. My biggest concern for Bitcoin in the short interim is heavy, heavy or excessive regulation of conversion. And I think we we need to build once you build the economy to the point where it doesn't need to leave. It doesn't matter anymore. I also think more and more of these rich fuckers are holding a shitload of Bitcoin and rich people write the laws. I mean, that, that, <laughs> that, that's that's the other way I look at it. When you start yeah. having. So my other interesting pattern in Bitcoin is when Bitcoin started, geeks and nerds argued about it. Right. Then people like small level influencers like podcast hosts and YouTube people argued about it. And then millionaires argue about it. And then later on, billionaires argued about it. And now countries are arguing about it. And there's a point where if the oligarchy itself begins to go, hey, you know what? kind of <laughs> like this, mm-hmm. then they'll defend it. Like, that's why I think one of the safest places for your money, it's not a great investment, but the safest place for your money is an insurance company. Hmm. Because it's incredibly highly regulated and it's incredibly high, highly protected by lobbyists. Sure. You know, so I'm not saying to put your money in there to make a return, but it's a great way to give your heirs money in a way that it can't be taxed. And you can borrow against it. Using, and you can borrow uh, against it. That's infinite kind of banking. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty solid. Um, no, I'm with you completely. And a lot of people, again, back to the it's all the new world order. That's the only factor yeah. and influence in the world. In reality, yeah. there's competing factions. There's self. I used to think I used to be one of these new world order guys that listened to Alex Jones every single day back in 2002, 2003, 2004. Thought I was all high and mighty. I knew everything. Yeah. Annoyed the piss out of my dad every time we drive past the shell. Look at that logo. That's a symbol of Queen Beatrix. And it's pyramid <laughs> upside down and blah, blah. My dad's like, give me a break, John. But then as I learned about libertarianism, yeah. I realized like a lot of people are just greedy and they yeah. leverage government to improve their bottom line. And so there's folks that are like that in the Bitcoin space. There's senators and U.S. congressmen that are favorable to Bitcoin. There's very wealthy, powerful, influential people that are into Bitcoin, and they have a sway over the conversation as well, not to mention there's competing nation states. And if the United States or the European Union were to ban Bitcoin, they would export all of the innovation, potential tax base to come from these companies that are improving the technology like you said, the cat's out of the bag and the network is so strong and decentralized and plentiful that they're going to have a really hard time banning it. But at the end of the day, if they do, we are the rebels and it's up to each and every one of us, unless you want your freaking kids to grow up in a world where they have no property rights, where every single fact- factor of their life is tracked, traced, cataloged, and they can be shut out of the economy if they think the wrong way then you need to put some damn skin in the game and be willing to risk a little bit of liberty for more liberty, right? That's that's what I like to say about that. There's so many of us out there, man. There's so many voluntarists, anarchists, agorists, freedom people, libertarians, even some Trump folks that are bucking the system. Yeah. Like There's millions of us, and a lot of people are not going to go along with it. So put aside the objections and hop on board before it's too late. And don't give them power they don't have. Don't assign them this hyper competency. Like I try to read a book every week. My book this week is 1491 America before Columbus. 
and like literally everything we were told about the native population is bullshit. And there were huge empires within the native population. And it turns out in a lot of instances, even with the diseases that hit them and all, what really allowed a small number of Europeans to conquer a lot of these native powders like like the the uh, the Mexia and uh, the Aztec and the Inca was internal strife and internal mm. fighting amongst people vying for total control. The, the Inca kings basically fighting with each other, contesting each other. And you, you start reading this and you start to realize, wait a minute. The people that lived here and ran these empires in North America and South America before European settlement, they were exactly like us. <laughs> they were no different at all than us. It wasn't any egalitarian society. It was a society of city-states. There were huge aqueducts. There were huge roads. All this stuff existed. It was all done with central planning. And in the end, even when an empire fell because another group fought back against it, it was actually the internal strife. It was the, the the inability to agree who was really in charge in the end. It was a constant battle, and I don't see that pattern changing anytime soon. Yeah, and a little more modern, uh, Ray Dalio, this billionaire oh, yeah. investor, has this awesome book called The Changing World Order, and he traces these cycles, and it doesn't, it doesn't go all back to the Inca and the indigenous um, yeah. empires, but it starts with the uh hungry and then of course the british empire right yeah. and they got these cycles and it's like everything's going good innovation education money production the economy's booming and then they turn into gluttons and sure enough debt and the issuance yeah. of debt starts to deteriorate that progress and then you have bad debt you have economic problems and it ultimately leads to dissatisfaction amongst the population and then civil war that yeah. is the indicator of a declining empire. And he traces these patterns and they happen over and over and over. And the current as one empire is declining, there's always another superpower that's growing. And right now it's America on the decline and China on the rise big time. And I don't see any reason why that's not going to continue to play out. And this my, great only, reset, my only thing on that is China, I think, has its own problems. I think China's going to yeah. have. And that begins to, to ask the question, well, what fills the vacuum? And I think that's I think that's what the WF sees themselves as. We're going to have what do they call it? Something capitalism. They call it something capitalism. Stakeholder capitalism. Yeah. Stakeholder capitalism is going to become the governing force of the world. And I'm not saying that they won't have in their mind successes, but I just I don't see like if you can't hold together long term a country how do you hold together a world i mean you, you know what i mean like there's gonna people are gonna go after their self-interest in the end and i think this is it's been a great discussion john i know i kept you here a long time i appreciate you being with us um thanks man i you want to tell people about a little bit more about what you do so they can go check you out yeah, sure, sure. So um, I do a lot of crypto webinars. Uh, sometimes we do them and then we put them in the vault. We encourage people to watch them when they're there live. But there's one that's still out for folks to check out. You can go to buildwealthoptout.com. I can send you the link too. You could share it there. It's a webinar. It's free. Break down a lot of stuff. It's actually four hours long. But people can check that out. And then if you want to come hang out, like this great reset thing's the real deal. And, you know, the DNC and the great reset and the Communist Party in China, they're all like linked up. And so maybe we move away from this nation state concept and it goes to this more centralization thing. Then it's the centralists versus the decentralists. Well, nothing's more important than going out and building 
reciprocal relationships with other decentralist, freedom-loving people, and you got a great opportunity to do that in person. There's a lot of folks. I take it for granted, even throughout the whole pandemic. Like I remember, we were hanging out at your workshop at the height of the pandemic. You yeah. know, there's yeah. like older folks there, younger folks. We're all just mixing it up, hugging, drinking beer together. Um, a lot of people, I think, still haven't really gotten out a whole lot, even within our community. So you got the Greater Reset for coming up. You can join Derek Bros down in Morelia, Mexico. There's gonna be a lot of international folks because you can get into Mexico without a vaccine, this or that. But uh, in Texas, good old Texas, right down the road from Jack in Bastrop, Texas, uh, we're going to have an incredible lineup of speakers. Dr. Ken Berry, uh, Texas Slim, who's been on Jack's podcast as well, is going to be there. And it's all about solutions. So if you're somebody that's feeling frustrated, if you're one of these detractors or somebody that feels overwhelmed, anxious, downtrodden, I promise you nothing is a more effective antidote to those negative feelings and that pessimism than getting out and swapping some germs, shaking some hands and strategizing with other freedom people. Because in the end, this is going to be a bottom up, not a revolution, an evolution, an evolution in our thinking, an evolution in the way we relate to one another, an evolution in the systems that we utilize in order to fulfill our wants and needs. We're building it. We're having successes. We're making major progress. And we need each and every one of you to be a part of it. And this is a wonderful opportunity to join us. Jack's got the links there. You can check us out, shake some hands, enjoy some incredible dinners. There's VIP dinner opportunities as well. And uh, you definitely won't be disappointed. We're putting this event together to empower you. And so I hope you'll join us there. You can watch it for free as well online if you don't want to join us in person. And Jack can share more information about that as well. Yeah, again, I got links in the stuff down there. And John's site's loading pretty slow right now. So if you click that link and it takes a while right. to load, just yeah, give it a minute. It'll show up. We got a new server getting set up. It's going to be switched yeah. over this week. But, uh, but definitely come. I said yesterday when I talked about this on my other show that um, John doesn't do anything half-ass or halfway. I, I went to uh, Exit and Build conference very similar to this one last year, spoke there. It was fantastically done. And I don't say that just because you're friends. You know me, I'm a dick. And I would <laughs> like that you screwed this up. You screwed. Like, I'm that guy. I'll tell you what you did wrong so that you yeah. can change it. And it was just incredibly well done. You're an amazing host of an event. I think that I might have a little more appreciation for it than some do because I've run events. And running an event is hard to do right. Mm. And you definitely do that. You'll get to meet me and you'll get to meet John. You get to meet freaking Zuby, man. Like you guys should come on down and hang out in Bastrop with us for the better part of a week. And, and I'll make sure links to everything that you got, John, are in the show notes today. Thanks for being with us, man. Thanks a lot, Jack. Keep it up. You down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. The American way a dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way